Let's just pray, and uh, then I'll introduce Gary. And so, Father, thank you for the joy of waking up today to a new day, a beautiful day, a day that you have made, and we want to be the kind of people that rejoice in the day that you have made and accept what's ahead. We don't know what this day holds. We anticipate sitting at the table studying today. Would you just keep us alert and help us to have keen minds to dig into the word? Thank you for Dr. Gilly. Thank you for his faithful ministry throughout the years of Bible church preaching, his faithful study of the word and of books. And I pray that you would quiet his heart and give him just an enjoyable day of communication and teaching and instruction. Help us to recognize the privilege of just studying your word together, of studying the church and in the context of church history and the, the movements that impact the church and the gospel. So give us a discerning mind and give us a, a growing understanding of the topic at hand. We're grateful for a quiet community. We're mindful of at least 17 families in South Florida that are grieving today and a horrible disruption to their lives because of sin and anger and uh, death. And I pray for somehow in the middle of all that, that Jesus Christ would be found. Lord, we commit our day to you. We're grateful for your good hand upon us. We're grateful for the gospel that is transforming us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to take just a minute before I introduce Gary. How many of you are here uh, from Independent Bible Church? We promoted at Independent. Let's see your hands. Two, four, six. At least uh, half a dozen of you, welcome from Independent Bible Church. In case you don't know it, Fellowship Bible Church, here where you're sitting, is a daughter church of Independent. And we're 20, 26 years ago, Pastor Mark and another man from over here in Jefferson County planted this church. And so this church is an offspring of Independent Bible Church. Anybody here from Centerpoint Bible Church? We promoted there, Centerpoint Bible Church. And how about First Baptist and Ransom? Did anybody come from First Baptist and Ransom? All right. Don't think so. That's too bad. All the rest, I'm going to assume, are connected to fellowship. Any other churches represented here from our community? All right. And the rest are fellowship. Well, we're so thankful that you're here. Um, I grew up under a father who was a pastor of a Bible church in the Midwest. And my dad was always a member of an organization called the IFCA. It stands for... Independent Fundamental Churches of America. Through the years, they kind of have had a reputation of being the fighting fundamentalists. Um, They're characterized generally by relatively small Bible churches sprinkled across the Midwest, but we're all across the country and now in several other countries. Um, It really is just a wonderful group of Bible churches. Guys from my dad's generation were kind of fighting some battles of the fundamentals. Um, I have enjoyed staying connected to the IFCA. You hear us talk about our young people going to youth convention and Bible quizzing and music competition and so forth at their conventions. It's been a great blessing to us traveling across the country to go to those events. The last several years, Janet and I have gone to the adult convention, which is for pastors and missionaries. And it's usually at a conference center somewhere across the country. And uh, I've heard of... Pastor Gary Gilley, Dr. Gary Gilley, for a number of years. I met his son years ago, uh, who's his on staff at his church, one of his associate pastors. 
And I knew that Gary wrote regularly in our periodical called The Voice Magazine for the IFCA. He writes articles on theology and doctrine and discerning the times. He has been the pastor of Sunnyview Chapel in Springfield, Illinois for 42 years. He's been faithful. He told me that he's been in ministry 44 years. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and can't remember where else. He told me for 44 years, he has made it his practice in ministry to read one book a week. So you do the math. This guy has read thousands of books. He's written a few. They're out on the counter. You can see it. It's a little bit self-explanatory there. And maybe later he can tell you what they are. But when I was thinking about this subject, I was thinking about the matter of speaking in tongues both as real languages, but mostly how I encounter it with people who use it in the form of like a prayer language or ecstatic utterances. And I know that this has been an an area of interest and curiosity, even division among our churches. And I was wanting for a couple years to bring somebody in to address The charismatic movement, speaking in tongues, what does the Bible say? What about 1 Corinthians 14 and Paul's instruction to a New Testament church to regulate tongues? And I thought of Gary Gilley. And so a while back, some months ago, connected with him, said, Gary, why don't you come out and do our Bible lecture series? And uh, he agreed to do that. And uh, I was just ready to introduce him and he took off on me. So uh, he wanted to go get some water. Gary, there's bottles of water out there. We can get that for him. Uh, I'll, I'll just keep talking. I get paid to talk. Do you know that? Um, okay, Mark, Pastor Mark, our youth pastor, has uh, three by five cards, and he's going to take about, put about four or five on each table and use those. Um, Lonzo will help you spread them out. Um, and use those to um, write down any questions that are germane to our subject at hand. I know you have many questions about many things. Today, the questions we want to answer have to do with speaking in tongues, the charismatic movement. What does the Bible say about these related issues? Let's give Gary Gilley a warm welcome and turn our attention to the study here at hand. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you today. I hope your minds are alert. This is a tough subject. It's a a very divisive subject in in many cases today, and we want to clearly and uh, graciously look into the Word of God and see what the Lord has to say to us about uh, this particular subject. Uh, As we do that, I I would mention, as far as the books and so forth back there, uh, there's some for purchase. There's also a journal that I write with that's available for free. And I'm going to put out another paper on the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, later. I don't want you to get that now because you'll read it during the time. And... and, uh, because a question that often comes up after a subject like this one is, well, then what does the Holy Spirit do? If the Holy Spirit doesn't do this, then what does He do? And that I've written an article on that showing the biblical roles of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life today. So uh, I'll put that out uh, after lunch probably. we got a lot to cover, and uh, we will probably not get through everything, but I want to cover thoroughly what we are wanting to cover. And uh, so we're going to start with the... Uh, Actually, the history, well, in just a moment, I'm going to start with the history of the, of the movement. But I'll start, first of all, make sure that's working okay. <clears throat> I want to give the identifiable views found within evangelical Christianity today concerning the sign gifts. And that includes tongues and prophecies and miracles. And there's been a huge resurgence of the sign gifts 
uh, throughout the world and throughout America and even up at, within many of the conservative circles that in the past have uh, rejected any form of, uh, of, the, of the sign gifts being available today. There's been a huge movement in the reform circles, for example. Uh, many of you read the books uh, by people like Wayne Grudem and, and uh, John Piper and uh, D.A. Carson and the different ones along that line. Many of them I appreciate very much in, in some areas, but these are people that are kind of leading this movement uh, within the reform circles. And we'll talk about them after lunch. So if you want to hear about that a little bit, that will not happen this morning. <clears throat> we'll look at what's going on today in those kind of circles after lunch. But uh, let's start with the identifiable views. There are five of them that, that are pr predominant today. <clears throat> First of all, there's the Pentecostal uh, charismatic third wave view, which is what we'll look at, we'll look at this morning. And that is the uh, traditional views of those who believe that the sign gifts are evident today and is part of their doctrine, part of their theology and their Christian life. And so they make no bones about it. That is uh, the essence of what they believe. Matter of fact, I was listening to a, a series, a, a, a conference, a bunch of sermons from a conference of a more conservative, more reformed uh, uh, teachers and Bible or scholars and so forth called Re uh, Conversions. And that, uh, as on my way to the airport yesterday, I was listening to these uh, these various ones. And these folks, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Sam Storms and Jack Deere and uh, Mark uh, uh, Chandler, these folks are really pushing the return of uh, the churches moving back into the assigned gifts and so forth. So it's very big, and a lot of people are, are going to these conferences and are following that. So we'll look at that later. But, but right now, this is the, the uh, more traditional view. The second view <clears throat> is the uh, classical mysticism our spiritual formation. Uh, this is, if you're not f real familiar with the terminology here, I, you probably have heard of, of the various ones that have been involved in this. Uh, uh, for uh, the, And I've written a book back here called Out of Formation. This is the Roman Catholic uh, traditions, mysticisms, asceticisms that have been recaptured in the 70s uh, and brought back into the evangelical church in the form of spiritual disciplines and spiritual formations. You might have run into it with the uh, term contemplative prayer and uh, Lexio Divina. Those are the two, of the two of the main disciplines that are promoted by this. And all that has to do basically with, with belief that God is speaking to us through these means. And so it's a return to all these gifts, and especially the gift of revelation and prophecy as found in the Richard Foster is probably the best known name of that movement. Dallas Willard would be his mentor. So uh, there's hundreds of books been written in the last 20 years uh, in that regard. So that's a big one as well. And then we have evangelical mysticism, and that's just a term I've made up. Uh, this is what uh, the, the, probably the average Christian in evangelical circles today uh, believe. Based, it, what, it, what it boils down to is that uh, many Christians are more guided by their feelings or hunches and what they think God is saying to them internally than they are with the Word of God. <clears throat> so they're not necessarily into the charismatic movement, but they do believe that God is somehow guiding them uh, and t talking to them and revealing things to them apart from Scripture. Uh, the fourth view is cessationism, which is what I'll talk about next hour, or not next hour, but after lunch. And that is the view that the sign gifts have ceased for today and they're no longer being promoted. Our, our uh, people no longer have them, actually. 
Uh, and the, the sign gifts have a purpose. Sign, the sign gifts were pointing to a sign. They pointed to something. And when that something was completed, the gifts ceased. But we'll, we'll develop that argument after lunch. <clears throat> and then finally, the most popular of all views is the cautious but open view. And this is the idea that I'm not into this, I'm not into the charismatic movement, but I'm open to it. Uh, I don't want to put God in a box. You've heard that term, I'm sure. Very, very common. I don't want to put God in a box. Therefore, I believe God can do whatever he wants to do. Who am I to tell him he can't do that? And so this is where most Christians are today. And uh, on the opposite side of that, it's very interesting listening to Mark Chandler. Many of you probably know him from, he's a leader of Acts 29, and uh, which is a, a, a church planning group of reform uh, mostly Reformed Charismatics. And uh, he, he took the opposite view, uh, chiding those in his camp who claim to be Charismatics with a seatbelt, which means that they're into it, but not too much. And they've they got a seatbelt on, they don't want to fly out the window. And he said, that can't be. So it's impossible. You either believe in assigned gifts or you don't believe in assigned gifts. You can't be a Charismatic with, with seatbelt. And from my perspective, the other side of it, I don't think it's possible to be cautious but open. The Lord either is uh, giving these gifts today, uh, or He is not. And I don't believe in the long term you can hold this position. Uh, my view, and we'll get to this again after lunch. I keep telling you this when so you come back after lunch. Uh, and maybe you'll stay awake after lunch, I don't know. But uh, after lunch I want to talk about that. I, I believe that we cannot put God in a box but God can put himself in a box. And if God puts himself in a box, we can go with it. I'll show you what box God put himself in after lunch. All right? Okay, so those are the views that uh, we will be looking at briefly today. And uh, you may line up in any one of those directions. Let me say this as we start. Uh, you may or may not agree with my position when it's all said and done. Uh, I'm going to present what I believe Scripture teaches clearly. And hopefully uh, that will challenge you. Uh, but we're, we're not uh, vilifying anyone who disagrees, and, and we, we can have some discussion in these areas as we work through it. And that's what the three-by-five cards are about, too. Uh, if, it's, if something comes to your mind that I'm not covering, perhaps we can uh, deal with that, okay? I want to go back now and look at the history of the movement. The Pentecostal Charismatic Movement did not start one day just out of, out of thin air. There's a history behind it. And the history really goes back to the Holiness Movement. And the Holiness Movement uh, probably has its roots in John Wesley. Now, John Wesley and Charles, uh, we, we appreciate so much that they did in evangelizing, uh, the evangelical awakening, so to speak, uh, in England mostly. Uh, and all the songs, uh, uh, Charles Wesley wrote 8,000 hymns, I believe. We're still using a dozen or 20 even today. <clears throat> we appreciate most of those. And for most of their theology, we're, we're in agreement. But, but some of their theology is questionable. And part of the issue that, that came up, and we find our, the roots here, is in the view that Wesley had concerning justification and sanctification. And, and he believed salvation was by faith alone, in Christ alone. So that is, uh, that's exactly where all of, we, of us are, I'm sure. So he, he was on page with that. But he believed there was a second tier of our salvation that he called entire sanctification or perfection. Uh, his most famous book, matter of fact, is, is just a little book. It's probably only a hundred, less than maybe 80 pages. It's called Perfectionism. He believed there could be a crisis experience 
uh, a, uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that could cause you to become sinless in this life. Justification took care of your past sins. Uh, entire sanctification took care of your present sins so that you could actually become sinless in this life. Uh, he never thought we could become perfect. We could make mistakes. Uh, and he, even at the end of his life, wasn't sure he made it to entire sanctification. But he believed it was possible, and it came about through a, and this is a term you ought to write down and think about, through a secondary crisis experience. Uh, the first crisis experience was salvation, conversion. The secondary one was sanctification. It was an act of faith. It was a movement of God in our life that brought about holiness. And that was uh, what he believed. Now later on, uh, we had some individuals like uh, Asa Mahan, who was a president of Overland College, and Charles Finney, who was also part of that, probably Finney more than, than Mahan. Uh, these individuals uh, took the sanctification of Wesley and they promoted it through the college, began to preach it throughout the world and throughout the country. In 1836, both these men claimed to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And uh, when they did, they became entirely sinless. They no longer sinned. They had a perfectionism. Eventually, Finney would go off the wagon uh, in, a, in a number of ways doctrinally, but this is an important thing. And the reason why it's so important is because uh, during this time, uh, just prior to this, we have at, at 1800, we have the beginning of the, what, and you might write this in as well on these notes, uh, these are the camp meetings. Let me start there. They would travel around at these camp meetings, revival type meetings, usually outdoors, having uh, these uh, thousands of people coming from everywhere to hear about the new doctrines and the enthusiasm of the, of the Finneys and the various ones. Uh, but a lot of this teaching was holiness teaching, uh, how to become sinless or, or something along that line. And this was considered, now this is the part you might add to it, this is considered the second great awakening. So for church historians, the first great awakening was under Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And that was in America. Over in England, the Wesleys were running their own awakening called the Evangelical Awakening are, are, uh, so forth. But in America, it was a great awakening under Edwards and Whitfield. And that was 1830s and 18, I'm sorry, 1730s and 1740s. After that died out, after the enthusiasm of the first great awakening died out, and I do believe it was a movement of God, that uh, there, there began a period of time of real apathy, spiritually speaking. By the time the Revolutionary War came along in America, there were less people going to church than there are now, percentage-wise. Only about 6 or 8% of anybody in America was a member of a church by the time of the Revolutionary War. Uh, so, so America had really gone into a downward spiral. After the war, in 1800, Cane Ridge, Kentucky, a great revival supposedly broke out that began what was called the Second Great Awakening. And the Second Great Awakening was very different than the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening was largely a Calvinistic, uh, doctrinally rich uh, movement of God. The Second Great Awakening was largely just an emo emotional revivalism. There's a difference between revival and revivalism. Revival would be a true movement of God, such as the Reformation uh, in the hearts of people. Revivalism is largely an enthusiastic, emotional experience. 
And the second great awakening was that. And so the preachers started going out all over the country preaching uh, this enthusiasm that went along with the Wesleyan theology of, of a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, a crisis experience that made you holy or whatever. And as that went out, uh, the preaching of the Word, the solid teaching of the Word began to again be minimized. Because if you came to your church and your pastor stood up and preached a message from Scripture and, and, and taught the Word of God, people didn't want to hear it. They would just been to the revival meetings and had a great emotional catharsis. And so the pastor started figuring out, if I want people to come to church, I'm going to have to become revivalistic. And so the churches stopped teaching much of the Word of God and became more enthusiastic sinners. So when we move into the 1850s, what, what did I say? Sinners? What, what did I say wrong? Enthusiastic sinners. Sinners instead of, instead of centers? I just said funny. Oh, it's funny. Oh, I didn't know it was funny. It's always good to be funny when you don't know it, I guess. When my people laugh at me, I get nervous. So I, and, well, okay. Uh, by 1850, uh, much of the church had lost its theological moorings. And then came along a, another movement called the Prayer Revival. 1857-1858, and, and many of our church history books, this gets good press. It is known as the third uh, Great Awakening in America. And uh, this was kind of short-lived, and in my opinion, mostly enthusiastic as well, rather than doctrinally grounded. Uh, nevertheless, as that moved on into the later parts of uh, the central parts and towards the, a little later, the Methodist Church began to splinter. Uh, the Methodist Church was pretty much leading the holiness movement, and as the, as the movement moved on, uh, the, as things died out, as enthusiasm died down, now not doctrinal uh, so solidarity, but enthusiasm, different groups popped up to start it over again. Another group that wanted to have a revival. And so you have the Wesleyan Methodists and the Free Methodists. Uh, by the way, do you know why it's called Free Methodists? They didn't, they didn't charge for their pews. Has nothing to do with their theology. You know, back in the days, they didn't take offerings. They, they rented the pews. If you wanted to come to church, they rented pews. Got a lot of that out here, and you see that around here. The Free Methodists said, they're free. Free Methodists, cool name, huh? So just a little, see if you learn nothing else this week, you, you learn why they're called Free Methodists, okay? All right, anyway, as these groups began to, to splinter off, uh, new denominations started to pick up. And... Uh, We have the, the, these other groups, especially we see the, the Church of God, uh, well, the Salvation Army. You see, I, I wanna, I'm not looking at my own PowerPoint here. We have, we have the Church of God, the Church of the Nazarene in 1908 began to, came out of the holiness movement, uh, Pilgrim Holiness Church. Salvation Army was purely a holiness movement uh, group that taught the second baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, that could lead to entire sanctification. And uh, even the Quakers were kind of the, a part of this, although they had some unique mystical forms of theology and so forth, but they were also part of this holiness movement. As it moved along, we had others that, that began to be involved. Hannah Whitehall Smith uh, wrote a book. She's a Quaker, a Quaker holiness teacher, and she had a horrible marriage. Um, but she wrote, a matter of fact, I think she ended up with a divorce and a scandal with her husband, a whole bunch of stuff. But she wrote a book called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life that is still in publication today and sells, if you went on Amazon, you'd probably still find it in the top 500 Christian books out there. I wouldn't be surprised. It sells like crazy. 
And uh, that promoted this holiness movement through her particular book. Uh, also, others involved in that early on, YMCA was part of this. That's hard to believe today, isn't it? If you're part of the YMCA, you probably got no holiness doctrine uh, when you go to work out. But, uh, but it was part of that early on. The Keswick movement also uh, was, this was in England in the 1870s. And uh, this was a group belief a little different now. They're beginning to change. They believed in a baptism of the Holy Spirit that brought power uh, for service as well as sanctification. Now that's a shift because the holiness people believe the baptism of the Holy, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit brought power for sanctification, holiness. Uh, the Keswick movement didn't go that far. They didn't believe in entire sanctification. They believed in a higher level of holiness, though, that came about at a crisis experience. At the second baptism of the Spirit, at this crisis experience, you could become a higher level Christian. The victorious Christian life was another term for this particular movement. Victorious Christian life. And they also believe, though, that when you got this second blessing, this, this second baptism of the Spirit, it would give you power for ministry. And the best known individual who was infected by that was D.L. Moody. Again, D.L. Moody did a lot of good things. I went to Moody Bible Institute and appreciated so much of the many of the things that he did. But at the same time, uh, in, in 1871, D.L. Moody had the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, he said, in which he fell on the ground and he had this emotional experience that went on forever. And when he was done with all that, his ministry took off, he said, after that second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Since that time, the late 1870s, uh, most of the time when people are talking about the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're talking about perhaps something spiritual, but also something with power. And when you hear the Charismatics and Pentecostals talking today, usually they're talking about power of some kind, powers to do miracles, powers to, be, to do healings, powers to speak in tongues, and so forth. So that was a shift in about the eight, uh, late 1870s. So that gives you some background there. So that's the holiness movement. And all that was going on prior to the Pentecostal movement uh, at, at this time that, that would come around just at the turn of, of the century. The uh, Pentecostals then, and now we move into the Pentecostal movement, uh, the, one, a holiness pastor and educator by the name of Charles Parham uh, believed in the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he began to question, what is the evidence of a second baptism? Uh, what would it be? Would it be power? Would it be holiness? What would it be? And in his study of Scripture, he believed it would be speaking in tongues. He believed that when people were baptized by the Holy Spirit in Scripture, they began to speak in tongues. So he started a school called Bethel Bible College down in Topeka, Kansas. And he began to uh, teach that doctrine and pray for all, him and all the students, which were about 34 students, began to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And they prayed for that and in, on, on, at a watch night service in 1900. Uh, they, pray, they were praying throughout the night for the, the ability to speak in tongues. That Early that morning, in January 1, uh, 19, uh, 1901, a gal, one of the students, Agnes Osmond, spoke in tongues. And now there had been a few people speak in tongues about four years earlier in another group. 
But nobody had connected the baptism of the Holy Spirit with tongue speaking before. Parham put that together. When Agnes began to speak in tongues that day, the other students started praying more earnestly. And by the end of the week, uh, the half of the student body was speaking in tongues. However, the, uh, the movement itself didn't gain much traction for a few years until uh, there was a revival in 1903 that Parham led in Galena, Kansas. Out of that revival, people began to catch the idea that, that you could speak in tongues as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Parham moved his school to Texas. And in Texas, he began to uh, write a paper, a magazine or whatever, called The Apostolic Faith. And that began to take the, his doctrines uh, broadly throughout the country uh, uh, concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. At the same time, and this is interesting for, again, church historians, uh, over across the pond, in, uh, there was the Welsh revival going on in 1904 to 1905. And many believe, believe that was a great evangelical Revival, But if you go and actually read what happened, it is almost mirrored to the Pentecostal movement. It's almost identical to it. So something was going on over in England, Great Britain, and something was going on over here about the same time that was beginning the birth of this Pentecostal movement. What, was, uh, what happened next, though, was that one of the students in Texas at Parham School by the name of William Seymour. Uh, William Seymour was a black holiness preacher with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of personality. Uh, he caught fire, and he took this particular doctrine of baptism of the Spirit and tongues and so forth out to California. And there at the Azusa Street Mission, in 1906 to 1909, there was a continuous set of meetings, a revival, so to speak. They would start at 10 o'clock in the morning, and they would go to 2 or 3 in the morning the next day, and they would stay the whole time. There was very little preaching. Once in a while, Seymour would preach. But largely, it was a static speech. It was uh, various revivalists, a lot of enthusiasm, and so forth. It was largely uh, black people. There were some whites and Hispanics. And early on, they got along quite well. But after a bit, Seymour banned all the Hispanics and refused to let any of the whites be in leadership or speak. And so it began to splinter. But before it did, it only lasted three years. But, at, but before it began to splinter, people found out about Azusa Street. And it's the Mecca of Pentecostalism even today, even though the, the mission has been torn down, but it is the Mecca. People came from all over the globe to catch the fire of Pentecostalism at Azusa Street, kind of like they did at the Brownsville Revival and Toronto, Toronto Blessing a few years ago. People came from everywhere with the idea if we could just get there, we could catch the fire and take it home. And pretty much in all those cases, that's what happened. And so Pentecostalism uh, spread from uh, Azusa Street largely. When Parham came to visit, it's interesting, Parham came to visit his student, uh, Seymour, in 1906. And after watching what was going on, he pronounced it demonic. Uh, so he wasn't on board. So there was a splinter early on in Pentecostalism. Parham went one way, Seymour went another and they never came back together, really. Uh, and, but Seymour became the shining star at this time. Parham uh, stayed around. He did some stuff, but he faded. But Seymour led the charge from that point on uh, in teaching of the second baptism of the Spirit with the uh, result, and, and the evidence was speaking in tongues and other sign gifts. 
as well. The demonic was hardly, largely involved, uh, demonic warfare, as well as the other sign gifts. We could ask today, now, who are the uh, Pentecostals today? Just kind of pulling some things together. The, here are some Pentecostal churches. Now, if you don't know the difference between a Pentecostal and a Charismatic, I'm going to tell you before lunch. Okay? <laughs> so hang in there. He's going to tell you. There's a difference. There's a big difference. So we're looking only at Pentecostals right now. And Pentecostals, or my wife likes to call them Pentecostals. She heard that when she was growing up. Pentecostals. That's not the way to say it. The Pentecostals... Uh, here's some churches that are denominational churches that are part of the Pentecostal movement. The Church of God in Christ, the International Church of the Four Square Gospel, the Church of God Tennessee, the Church of God of Prophecy, uh, the Pentecostal Holiness Church, the Fire Baptized Holiness Church. You've got to watch that group. They'll burn you. Uh, and that was a joke. He's put a life at that one. That wasn't, that wasn't very good, huh? No. All right. Okay. Uh, Pentecostal Free Will Baptist Church. Okay, so most Baptists are not Pentecostal, but the, there is one group. The Assembly of God is one of the very largest of the old-time Pentecostal churches. The United Pentecostal Church um, is another derivative, but they do not believe in the Trinity. And we'll look at them in just a few moments, just briefly. So these are some of the major Pentecostal denominations in a Pentecostal denomination, there's a set of doctrines, kind of like you would have at a church like this. Here's what we believe on this and this and this and this and this. Uh, they, don't all, they don't all agree. For example, the United Pentecostal Church is it doesn't, it's a oneness Pentecostals, they call them. They don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, so, but that is their official doctrine. If you go to that church, then you will, uh, I assume, believe in that doctrine. Uh, so that's, so that, that's what makes a Pentecostal church, these sets of doctrines, not just the baptism of the Holy Spirit and tongues and so forth, but these other doctrines as well. Before I go on to look at some of the, the, the doctrinal distinctives, though, I'd like to, to look at also some of the things that's happened since. Uh, as we move forward, the Pentecostal church began to change in the early 1900s, but it did not bleed into the uh, non-charismatic churches, the non-Pentecostal churches, until later. So what we have right now, though, is uh, it, there is a deliverance ministry. Am I off by notes here? Is, is this, okay, if it is, just throw it in there somewhere, all right? I don't follow my own notes very well sometimes. Uh, but anyway, in the mid-1900s, in, in there was what was known as the deliverance revival. And not, not a lot of people understand that very well. But this is best represented by Oral Roberts. Okay? So mainly a healing revival, uh, television stuff. Oral Roberts University came out of that and so forth. Uh, so we have Oral Roberts, a new emphasis on healing, and a doctrinal teaching that healing is in the atonement. That if you're a Christian, Christ died not only for your spiritual healing, but your physical healing. So we have healing in the atonement. So now the, the movement is moving more and more. Uh, and so we have, we started off, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit was evidenced by speaking in tongues, uh, some spiritual development, power. But now we're, we're finding physical healing in the atonement as well. And so that was found in that deliverance uh, revival at that time. Um, since that time, uh, a lot of changes have taken place. There's a couple of names. William Parham was the father of the movement. 
Uh, Oral Roberts, however, is the best known representative. There's others that have come along since. I thought I had to be blocked out, but I don't. Uh, Latter Rain, which believe that uh, there's going to be a great revival at the end of time. That's going to uh, bring in bring Christ back. I'm not going to look at that. I want to go to the old charismatics. Is that back on your notes somewhere? All right. Okay. This is where this is where it changes. Now here's the difference. In case you don't know, and I just taught this at my church uh, recently, and one of our guys who has a master's degree, a degree, master's degree from Master's College, and getting a doctor degree from another seminary right now, uh, didn't it never knew, knew this. So if you didn't know, if you don't know this, then you're probably in good company. All right. And that is that the charismatic movement is not Pentecostalism. Okay, there's a difference. The Pentecostal, the, the charismatic movement began in 1960. Father Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopal priest, a liberal priest, claimed he spoke in tongues, had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he spoke in tongues. That is the birthday, supposedly, of the charismatic movement, because now here's what happens. The, the, the distinctions, not, not all the doctrines, but the distinctions of the Pentecostal movement, which is second baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and the restoration of the sign gifts, now moves from Pentecostalism into mainstream Christianity. So you need to really catch that, because that was a major shift. Up until 1960s, the Pentecostals were over here, and the rest of Christianity was over here, even though we might agree on doctor, some doctrines. But they were very separate. 1960, when a very sophisticated Episcopal priest spoke in tongues and said he had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's, that was a springboard to taking the Pentecostal distinctives into all denominations and churches in America and the world. But here, here, here's the thing. While they agree on certain distinctions, the baptism of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, restoration of the sign gifts, they do not agree on other doctrines. So you have charismatic Catholics, charismatic Baptists, charismatic Presbyterians, and all up and down the line, whatever you want to look at, all of these different groups that are following the, the Pentecostal distinctives have different doctrines. They're united about around one thing, this, uh, the, these distinctives of Pentecostalism. So that's the beginning. So a Pentecostal is not the same as a charismatic, although they agree about certain distinctions. Does that make sense? Hopefully you, you grab that. The, the movement really began to spread then in ni- about 1965. And I want to tell you why. Uh, Calvary Chapels, Chuck Smith, if you know anything about that, one of some of the largest churches in America, out in California... Uh, began to teach a form of Pentecostalism, uh, charismatic movement. But what really spread this, what really began to spread uh, Pentecostal distinctives into mainline churches was the Jesus people, or the Jesus freaks, as they were called at that time, in the 1960s and early 1970s. Just read a whole book on this, God's Forever People, which is a very interesting documentary book, historic book, of this, the as the hippies got saved out in San Francisco, there was an, uh, uh, churches and ministries geared up to to reach them, and as they did that, uh, going in there with it with them, uh, it was almost entirely uh, what the doctrines they accepted was almost entirely Pentecostalism. 
And so what they did is uh, they, they all believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They all believed in speaking in tongues. They believed in demonic warfare. They believed, believed in the sign gifts. And so these uh, hippies that were getting saved, many of them still on LSD and marijuana and so forth, uh, they began to accept that doctrine. Almost everyone, 80% of them, according to this book, were bought the Pentecostal distinctives. When, when the Jesus People Movement died out, just six, eight years later, evangelicalism had changed in such a way that was unbelievable. Matter of fact, because I, 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 I lived through that, okay? If you fell asleep in 1964 and did a Rip Van Winkle thing, in 1964 you were part of an evangelical community, and you woke up in 1976, the whole evangelical church had changed. Up until that time, uh, there, was a, there was a desire of the church. This, the holiness movement was very prominent. You stay away from the sinfulness of the culture. You didn't, you didn't get involved with the impurities of the culture. You wanted to look differently. You didn't take their music. Matter of fact, in 1960, Billy Graham and Youth for Christ said we would never use rock music in a local church. All that changed during the Jesus People movement because to reach the Jesus people, they started using rock music, the kind of music they liked. When the dust had settled, the music of the Jesus people started moving into the evangelical church. We, today, most of us wouldn't even think about that. The contemporary uh, Christian music today wasn't even heard of in 1964. Today, it, it pretty much is everywhere. It's a radical, radical change. For better or worse, radical, radical change. Okay? The, even the dress. To, back before that, everybody came to church dressed up. That, the casual dress came out of the Jesus people movement. Nobody probably even thinks about that. Uh, the, the, the Pentecostal uh, doctrines that spread, the, the seeker-sensitive church, uh, Bill Hybels, uh, Rick Warren, all that group, that was Jesus' people moving into the local church. And, in, and the seeker-sensitive movement attempted to minister to these people by giving them those things that had brought them to Christ. And the seeker-sensitive movement, my, one of my first books back there, uh, This Little Church Went to Market, it was all about what that is. And we have another volume that has all three of my little church books in it that deals with that issue. All that happened throughout the Jesus' people movement. It's very interesting how... We don't even know that now because everybody who was living then is now dead except for me and two other people. So anyway, um, it's, it's interesting to see that. But for our purposes today, it's not those things. I could talk about that a long time, as you could tell. But uh, the point is that the doctrines, the distinctives of the Pentecostal movement now moved into mainstream Christianity and began to spread all over the globe as a result of these people bringing, coming into the church. So that is the beginning of the charismatic movement. And uh, today we have other things that we will not talk about today. We'll not get time to do so. But other movements that have happened since. The Word of Faith movement, for example, or a positive confession, began in about 1970 by uh, Hagen Copeland. Benny Hinn's a good representative of that. Should add on this, by the way, Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is of, of this exact same movement. He disguises it better. If you watch his program which I hope makes you sick if you do. If you watch his program, uh, he isn't going to say much about this 
that you're going to catch if you're not astute. If you read his books, you'll catch it a lot quicker. Uh, the Word of Faith movement, by the way, teaches this. Three things real quickly. Number one, if you, uh, if you want to have something from God, you first of all visualize it. Secondly, you've got to visualize it. You've got to think it in your brain. Secondly, you've got to believe it. And thirdly, you've got to speak it. That's why you have Word of Faith. So if you want something to happen, you visualize it. You have faith that it's going to happen. And you say it out loud. And when you say it out loud, God will do it. That's a positive confession, word of faith movement. Joel Osteen teaches that clearly in his books. Not as clearly on television, but it's there. Okay? Anyway, that's word of faith movement. That's a Pentecostal charismatic movement. Uh, and then there are the new charismatics starting in 1980. Uh, one of the issues here, you probably never heard of Bishop Polk, but he began to teach dominionism. And dominionism is the idea that we are to take over the world. Christians are. Okay, so we hear that. Uh, even, you know, I think even some of us in our circles, back when the moral majority was picking up, you know, uh, many people thought we were starting to take over the world. Matter of fact, Ed Dobson, who worked with uh, Jerry Falwell and those guys who wrote a book on it later on, said, we believe when Ronald Reagan became president that the Lord was coming back. We, we were bringing in Jesus Christ. You know, that, that's how far off they were with some of that. But do, dominionism, it, it, before Christ can come back, we have to conquer the world, spiritually speaking. And that's big in many Pentecostal circles. Then there's a vineyard movement, 18, 1982, started by John Wimber. Uh, and that was a third wave. You see that there? So if you want to be precise on the Pentecostal movement, they believe there's been, most of them believe, historically, that the Holy Spirit did not have, give the sign gifts or tongues or any of these things for about 1,900 years, from the death of the apostles to 19, uh, 1,900. Then the first wave of the Holy Spirit came, and that brought in Pentecostalism in 1901. Second wave of the Holy Spirit came in 1960 and brought the charismatic movement. The third wave of the Holy Spirit, according to John Wimber, was 1982, and that brought in the third wave. And the differences had to do with power evangelism and visions and so forth that I don't have time to, to deal with today. And then there are such things as the Lifing Revival and the Brownsville and the Toronto Blessing, uh, these types of things that have come in. Uh, and even further, in the newer things, in the new charismatics, you have in 19, about 2001, just this century, the, the pickup of the uh, new apostolic reformation, which I have an article or two on our website on this one. And this is the idea that the fi all five of the ministries of Ephesians chapter one, 4, verse 11, are being restored, including the apostleship. And so we have a new era where apostles are being restored. They think there's about 400 of them on earth. And the apostles have the same authority that the original apostles had. And a new era is being brought into church. And this is one of the fastest growing elements of Christ Christianity throughout the globe. New Apostolic Reformation. We also have places like Bethel in Redding, California. That is just bizarre stuff going on there. But people are going out. They have a school there to teach you how to work miracles. About 2,000 students go to this school to learn how to do miracles. We have people in our town that have gone to that school. And uh, they believe when they come to services that, uh, that angel feathers fall from the sky 
on, on top of them. Gold dust falls. Their teeth are filled by, with gold. Whether they even claim recently that the, when the leaders of this movement are walking through airports, angel feathers fall on them. Now I got I tell you what, I want to be there when that happens. All right, I, I really if I ever get out there, I'm going to go because I did go to one of these kinds of services locally once, and what I and they were telling me they were telling everybody the Holy Spirit just showed up. They blew the ram's horn. The Holy Spirit showed up. They, they showed me where he was. And all I could see was a cobweb. No Holy Spirit up there. You know? But people are going, ooh, ah. I don't know. But this is the kind of thing. And, and Bethel and IHOP, um, I, I, I should have put IHOP in there. IHOP, International House of Prayer, not Pancakes. <laughs> Matter of fact, Pancake Place sued the prayer place said, you can't use IHOP anymore. And they won the suit. Uh, but anyway, uh, International House of Prayer uh, out in uh, Kansas City, the Kansas City Prophets, huge, especially among young people. Uh, these groups are spreading these kinds of strange things, prophecies. They claim all these prophecies and so forth. And they're really, really spreading throughout their, by their conferences and by their music. Okay? Since, the, since going all the way back to the night period of the Nicene Creed, doctrine has been spread by music as much as by theology. Arianism, a little piece of history. When the Nicene Creed said, look, the, 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 Jesus Christ is God, Arius said, no, he's not. And Arius started writing little choruses. And the little ditties, these little choruses went out. And for a hundred years, the church was predominantly Arian as a result of his music. Music has always had a powerful thing, so be very careful with music. Uh, Bethel, uh, Hillsong, IHOP, these various groups are putting out a lot of music. Some of it, okay. Most of it, you've got to watch very carefully. Bad doctrines being propagated through the use of music, and that's how they're doing it. Then we have the final group that um, we will look at maybe after lunch. We'll see. <laughs> A little bit. The Reformed Charismatics. This is really pretty new, going back mainly to uh, the Sovereign Grace Ministries uh, and Together for the Gospel. Uh, Wayne Grudem is the godfather of the movement, I suppose, in some ways. I will talk about that a little bit later on. So here we have people with very strong doctrinal views in the Calvinistic Reformed vein who are practicing the sign gifts. And this is a new phenomenon that uh, relatively new phenomenon that some people never thought would ever happen. Um, let me just throw up some books here for you. Uh, if you want to know anything about this, you've got to know who's writing what. Uh, this book, uh, I'm just going to throw them up there, but Gramacchi's an older book. is still very good. Some others. Uh, Charles Smith wrote an excellent book called Tongues in Biblical Perspective. Um, George Gardner, he's been gone a while, wrote a little book called The Corinthian Catastrophe, that got me going on this subject back when I was uh, a youth pastor, probably just two years in the ministry, and I heard him speak, and this it was revolutionary in my thinking, and I began to study this at that point. That's back a long time ago. Um, other books, MacArthur, of course, has written several books. Older ones, the Charismatic, uh, the Charismatics, the Charismatic Chaos. Uh, Hanegraaff is written about the Word of Faith movement on Christianity in Crisis and Counterfeit Revival. MacArthur's newest book is Strange Fire. That's caused a lot of, a lot of fire. Uh, recently, his conference and his book on this subject 
Uh, by the way, he doesn't write many of his own books, you know. His seminary people are writing them. He writes a chapter or so. Uh, and sometimes he doesn't write anything. His theology book that just came out, I don't think he wrote a word. Uh, those are all by his professors. But you don't sell it if you say Charlie Charlie wrote that book. You sell it if John MacArthur did, right? So anyway, uh, he's the editor of it, so to speak. Now, if you want to go the other side, if you want to be fair, in, in my writings uh, and so forth, I try to be extremely fair by going to the primary sources. I don't want to know what MacArthur thinks. I want to know what they think. So that's where I go. Now, if you want to look at one book that is sympathetic to the movement, person deeply involved in it, this book actually gives you what they believe and the history. It's very accurate from their perspective. 2,000 years of charismatic Christianity. And uh, it's very accurate as far as their position is concerned. Okay, let me... Let me quickly look at these with you, and then we'll take a break, okay? Um, I, what, are the, what are the Pentecostal beliefs? We've already looked at this. Many of them believe in entire sanctification, or at least a higher level of sanctification than the average person has. It doesn't take a whole lot to realize that if you believe some people have a second work of grace, a second baptism, and other Christians don't, that we have two classes of Christians, the haves and the have-nots. So there is this division there. Uh, some believe in the Christian perfectionism. Uh, all of them believe in some form of the baptism, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit that is evidenced usually in tongues. Now, some have moved away from that a bit and no longer talk about that, but they do believe that it's the restoration of the signed gifts. Uh, there are some other beliefs, such as the Trinity, Assembly of Gods believe in the Trinity just like we do, but the Oneness Pentecostals do not. The best known representative of the Oneness Pentecostals, best known, I guess, would be T.D. Jakes in the Potter's House down in Texas. So he's a Oneness Pentecostal. He's putting out some movies that have actually been on the big screen and stuff, but he does not believe in the Trinity as we do. Uh, Oneness Pentecostalism. The Pentecostal movement is always, and the Holiness movement, has always believed in women preachers. So don't be surprised when you see that in these particular circles. Uh, one of the best known is Amy uh, Fearson, uh, uh, Simpleton McPherson. She started the, uh, the uh, Foursquare Gospel. Jack Hayford is the best known representative of that today. And uh, she was a superstar, media star back in her day. A very interesting story about her. Uh, there's some others, but uh, Catherine Kuhlman, probably one of the best. She was the uh, a model for Benny Hinn. Matter of fact, Benny Hinn dresses like her. He doesn't wear a dress, but he wears all white when he's healing people, just like Catherine Kuhlman did. She, again, was huge. Uh, today, don't be surprised, then, that the uh, advisor to Donald Trump, uh, Paula White, is a Pentecostal preacher. Uh, Nothing, nothing surprising in those circles because that has been true for a hundred years. Uh, Catherine Booth uh, of, the, of the Salvation Army was as predominant as her husband in the Salvation Army days back in the 1800s. So this has been true all along. Let me close by just throwing this up here real quickly and then we'll take a break. Uh, the doctrinal distinctive then of the charismatic movement that all Pentecostals, all charismatics of any stripe pretty much believe is this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the second work of grace that brings power in the life of the believer. Number two, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues or 
Some changes to this, the restoration of the sign gifts as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there is a restoration of sign gifts. Most believe tongues. Some simply believe prophecy and miracles, healings, uh, demonic warfare, and that type of thing. So these are the distinctives. Next hour, we'll look at the scripture and start to examine what the Bible says about this. Okay, so you want to take a break? Okay. Let's just take a five minute break. Uh, eat up the donuts, a bottle of water out there, coffee, and in five minutes we'll get started. Okay, let's go back and get started again. I think the, the, uh, the charismatics are moving over to the left over here, and uh, so we got them over there now. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, one, uh, I'm going really quickly, and uh, so I'm throwing out things that maybe uh, some of you are not familiar with, so you might have to stop me or ask me later or send something up here. Somebody mentioned Arianism. I mentioned that. If you're not familiar with that, that was what the first council of the church in the, in the, the fourth century met together to discuss whether Jesus Christ was God. A guy named Arius came along and said Jesus was created by God. He was not fully God, and that's why they came together at that point to argue with that. Athanasius was the hero of the day. Athanasius stood strongly for uh, the deity, the trinity, the deity of Christ. And, uh, and, they, and at the Council of Nicaea, they won that battle. The church united together and said, we believe uh, that in the trinity and the deity of Christ. But what the council said isn't what the church believed for the next hundred years. Because Arius didn't accept it. And he went out writing his songs that spread throughout all the churches. And most churches for a while were Arianism, which believed, did not believe in the Trinity. So that just shows the power of music, okay? So I just want to throw that out there. Okay, uh, going back here, once again, let's start with these distinctions. Uh, let me, somebody did ask a question, so I want to make sure you understand whether you're Pentecostal or, or charismatic. Now, sure, you should know the difference now. Pentecostals are in their own denominations. They have their own distinct doctrines. The Assembly of God believes certain things. The United Pentecostals believe certain things. The Foursquare believes certain things. Plus, they believe these three things here. Okay? The Charismatics can be in any denomination. You can be a Catholic, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Baptist, a Lutheran. Uh, all those doctrines are different, right? Which makes us wonder also, by the way, how could some of these people who we know are not Christians practice these gifts and believe these things? So that's something that has to be factored in. But all charismatics would believe something like this. So if you're a Baptist charismatic, you believe in the, some, the second baptism of the Holy Spirit or something like it that, that gives you the ability to have these sign gifts. The restoration of the sign gifts. Usually tongues, but not always. Okay? So that's a distinction there. So these are the three uh, things that we will back off. The question now is, is on the issue of tongues. And we're going to look at four passages. And all of them are in Acts. The, the doctrine of tongues is primarily camp, uh, brought, uh, born out of the book of Acts. And then also out of 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> Those are the, doctrine, the biblical passages that uh, we will look at. So, we, so now is when we're going to jump into Scripture. And uh, again, we can't spend all year on this. We only have so much time. But I want to show you there are four passages in the book of Acts that historically have been the basis for uh, Pentecostal beliefs 
in speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 8 is the first one, the day of Pentecost. And uh, uh, I just want to pick up here somewhere. Uh, I got the wrong chapter. No wonder I couldn't find it. The, uh, just notice a little bit here on, on verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Now, this is the birthday of the church. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the house, a whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves as they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You drop down in verse 6, and each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Okay? And they thought that was odd, verse 8. How is it that we hear them speak in our own language to which we were born? So this is the first time tongues is spoken. We don't find it anywhere else in Scripture before this. And we find it there. And notice here that the ones speaking in tongue were not the people being saved. And this is something I, I probably should mention. Many Pentecostals historically have believed that, that tongues is a sign of salvation. If you don't speak in tongues, at least initially, you're not saved. Now, a lot of them still teach that. But we, still, we don't see that here. Uh, we'll look at some of that in a moment. But uh, uh, most of them don't teach that today, I don't think. Anyway, we notice here, this is the only time that gives us any content of tongues speaking. And what we find is they're speaking in such a way that they're understandable by people who understand the language. So uh, theologians throughout time, who have looked at this from our perspective anyway, have believed that tongues is a known language that you didn't know. That supernaturally God gave you the ability to speak in Spanish or Chinese or whatever, and you didn't know that language. And usually it's for the purpose of evangelism, has been the idea that uh, you would use it to tell the gospel. This was such a part, by the way, of the early Pentecostal movement. They believed that wholeheartedly. The early Pentecostals believed until about 1920, it was part of their doctrinal statements, that tongues were known languages. They sent missionaries throughout the world to speak in tongues to people they thought would understand them. And it didn't work. They spoke in a, in a, a gibberish or a, a, some kind of a language that is really not a real language, according to linguists who study this, linguistic experts. But what they did find is that as they went out to speak, as say, in China, in tongues, the Chinese people didn't understand them. And so the missionaries came home. This is a historical fact. The missionaries came home and said it didn't work. This is not known languages. And they changed officially their doctrinal statements at that point. And in many of your Bibles, you'll, I'm, I'm using New American, by the way, New American Standard. In many of your Bibles, you'll see the words unknown tongue. If you see in your Bibles, that should be in italics. Because that word unknown is not there. But that goes back to a doctrinal understanding that we're speaking in gibberish languages rather than known languages. The only place we have any content of what tongues is is right here. And it was a language people could understand. It's a miracle that they heard it in their own language. How that worked, I don't know. Did they speak this, this language in, a, in Arab, Aramaic? And then the people heard it in their own dialect? Possibly. Or did the 120 that were speaking in these languages each speak in different languages that they did not know and people heard them in their groups? 
Kind of like they did at the Tower of Babel. I don't know. But I do know that the only place we see any content of the tongues is known languages. Now, I'll talk about this a little later on. But one of the things that, that ought to arrest everybody's attention and get everybody to think is whatever is going on today in the Pentecostal slash charismatic movement, as far as the sign gifts, is not what happened in the scriptures. Let me give you all four. I'll probably say it later because I want you to get that this is a good takeaway. If tongues was languages, languages are not being spoken today in tongues. People are not speaking languages they don't know. Secondly, which by the way, I tried when I was taking French in college. It didn't work, you know. Just try to, try to fake it. It didn't, didn't, didn't work well. Number one is, uh, are we talking about the, the tongues and stuff? Yeah, tongues uh, in Scripture was a known language. Today it's not. Miracles in Scripture were, were instantaneous, complete, unorchestrated. Today they're not. People go out to perform miracles. The Benny Hinn style, they have this two or three hours of music ahead of time. They have people screened. They, they, there's no verification. There's no way to verify the healings. And what verification has been done by independent sources show no true organic healings in these movements. You got people claiming they were partially healed uh, and so forth. Uh, unverifiable things. That is not what happened in Scripture. When Jesus healed somebody, they were healed instantaneously, completely. That is not happening today, folks. It's not happening today. Uh, prophecy. We're going to talk about prophecy after lunch. All right? <laughs> prophecy in the Scriptures was revelation from God. It was infallible. There was no error in it. It was a word from God. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, You'll find in the Old Testament, if you spoke a false word in the name of the Lord as a prophecy, you were killed. So you didn't get a second chance at that. Today, prophecies are by everybody involved, all the leaders of the movement, Wayne Grudem on down to Benny Hinn, will tell you that prophecies are flawed, partially correct, partially human, partially of God. A huge percent of them never come true. That it was not what happened in Scripture. Now, if you put those three things together on the sign gifts, okay? Tongues is not what happened in Scripture. Not, what's happening today is not what happened in Scripture. Healings, not, not what's happening today, what happened in Scripture. Prophecy, what's happening today, did not, is, isn't what happened in Scripture. And then you look at what's going on, even if you're very favorable towards the movement, and, and very sincere, godly people are, Okay? This is not a this is not a black mark on somebody's love for Christ. I've known people in, in a Pentecostal charismatic movement that love Christ probably more than I do. Okay, so that's not the point. The point is what was going on in Scripture is not what is going on today. And so we have to ask the question: what is going on today? It's not a restoration of the biblical sign gifts. It's something else. And that's a big question mark for anybody, even if you're very favorable to the movement that you've got you to analyze. Okay? Okay, so let's stay with this. We see, first of all, this. In chapter 8 of Acts is the next one. Verses 14 to 18. 8, 14 to 18. We have uh, Philip preaching to the Samaritans. And in verse 14... 
now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. For they had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord. They began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. A couple things to note here is uh, they, they had, these Samaritans had gotten saved, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans 8, 9 says, The mark of the believer is that the Holy Spirit indwells us. That is the mark of the believer. Holy Spirit lives in us. So what happened here? These people were genuinely saved, but no Holy Spirit. The apostles had to come down because they were the representatives of Christ. They had the authority of Christ. They were sent out by Christ and lay hands on these people because Philip was not an apostle. And when he did, they received the, the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say baptism, by the way. They received the Holy Spirit. But there's no mention of tongues here. So here's a second passage on tongues that is used, no mention of tongues. All right, I'm just using the passages they use. All right. Uh, number three, Acts chapter 10, the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. The Jews received the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, the Samaritans in chapter 8, the Gentiles in chapter 10. All three times they received the Holy Spirit at the, at the ministry of the apostles. Extremely important to, to understand that. Verse 44 of Acts chapter 10, when Peter was still speaking to these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Uh, thus Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for them to be baptized who has received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so now we have the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. Does not say baptism of the Holy Spirit. Please note that. We're going to look at what Scripture says on that in a moment. But they receive the Holy Spirit for the first time. The Holy Spirit is indwelling them. And they do speak in tongues. And then our last passage is Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. Here are people that many see as Old Testament believers. These are disciples of John the Baptist. But they had not yet understood biblical New Testament teachings. And so when, when Paul is talking to them, he says in verse 2 of Acts 19... He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we were not even, we not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So they, they're untaught. The Old Testament people didn't have a handle on the Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying and they were all about 12 men. So now the Old Testament saints uh, are coming into to the church. They're being baptized, are being, uh, they're, they're converted into Christianity and they receive the Holy Spirit uh, and, uh, and they do speak in tongues. Now let's look at these together as far as a chart. When we look at the chart, we find there's, uh, as, as these four events, different things happen in each of them. For example, chapter 2 has sounds of wind, but the other chapters don't. Uh, by the way, Bethel 
And Redding, California claims that wind blows through their building sometimes it's as the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, we don't find that anywhere except Acts chapter 2. Uh, tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2, but nowhere else. Uh, speaking in tongues. Whoops, did I go too far? I'm sorry. I thought, there was, I thought it was different. Okay, that's what happens when I don't know what is in the back of my head. Okay, tongues of fire, chapter 2. Okay? Uh, but not in 8, 9 or, 8, 10, or 19. Speaking in tongues, chapter 2, 10, or 19, but not chapter 8. Okay, I got another chart. You ready for it? Okay. Laying on of hands in chapter 8 and 19. Apostles' hands, but not in 2 and 10. Oh, I did it again, didn't I? I'm sorry. Okay, I need, I need a little mirror here for a rearview mirror. Uh, uh, the Spirit received after salvation in 2 and 8. Now remember, we had the 120 who had followed Christ. They were believers, right? And they received the Holy Spirit after that. In chapter, in chapter 8, uh, these people were already saved. Scripture is very clear about that. But they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until the apostles came down. But in chapters 10 and 19, they immediately received the Holy Spirit upon conversion. As soon as they got saved. And then the last one, the Spirit, uh, chapter 2, the Spirit received at the moment of salvation. Uh, in 2 and 8, it didn't happen, but in 10 and 19, it did. So I think I might have reversed that in my, what I just said. I don't know. But anyway, there you are. There's the chart. Okay, now what's, what's the point? There's no consistency here. You can't build a doctrine on this inconsistency. On top of that, and you, don't, you can't write this all down, but I'm going to give it to you. Uh, in the other experiences of salvation in the book of Acts, notice here are occasions when these people were saved, but none of them spoke in tongues. Okay? The 3,000 of Pentecost, 5,000 men, the eunuch, Saul, uh, Sergius Paulus at, at Antioch, um, Lydia, the, the Philippian jailer, the Berean in Thessalonica, a Athens, um, Christmas at, at, at Ephesus. No mention on any of these places that they spoke in tongues. There was three, four, three occasions, really, when we see it. At, when the Jews received the Holy Spirit, when the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, when the Old Testament believers received the Holy Spirit. But that's all. These other occasions, they didn't get it. It seems like the, the, the speaking in tongues initiated uh, as, the, as they were saved at that moment. It, it became an initiation at that moment when Gentiles, Jews, and so forth received Christ. Now, that leads John R. W. Stott to say this. It would be impossible to build a consistent doctrine about the Holy Spirit from Acts. This is why the epistles are written to give us doctrine no apostolic sermon contains an appeal to be baptized with the Spirit. So Stott is correct on all that. And that's a very good quote uh, because we don't build our doctrines on Acts. We can illustrate them and we can glean from them. But the epistles are written to give us theology. So we need to go there and maybe illustrate it with Acts, but be careful building any doctrine itself on Acts alone. But the second part is, and this is very important, nowhere in Scripture were we ever told to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, came uh, at, a point, at our point of salvation. And nobody was ever told to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, let's talk about the purpose of the baptism for just a moment. Why? What is it? Now, if, the, if one of the distinctions of Pentecostalism all the way back, and of all the charismatics today is that we, are, we have this second blessing. Uh, there's different terms used. Second blessings, second work of grace, second baptism of the Holy Spirit, some crisis experience. If that is uh, what is believed, then we need to go back and look at what Scripture says about the baptism of the Spirit. Here's, a, here's very important passages. I'm not going to look but at two of them. Uh, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. We'll start there. Ephesians 4, 5. Paul says here that there is one, there is one body, one spirit, into which you were called, that's verse 4, in 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 one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Pretty clear. He's talking about one, right? He says there's one baptism. Now, unless we want to change Scripture and say, well, maybe there's more than one Lord. Maybe there's more than one God. Maybe there's more than one faith. We're going to have to keep this consistently in context. There's one baptism. Okay? There's not two. There's no second baptism, and there's no third baptism, as some people teach. There's one baptism. Scripture is pretty clear. So if we want to know what that is, we have to go to a passage that teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Friends, this is the basically the only passage in Scripture that clearly tells us why God gave us the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12. Verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. Pretty clear here, one Spirit, all believers are baptized into one body. What's that body? The body of Christ. Spirit baptism brings us into the body of Christ. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, He indwells us. He comes within us. He lives within us. Uh, He he can fill us when we are living in obedience to Him. Uh, He regenerates us. He changes our nature. These types of things He does. But He also baptizes us for the purpose of bringing us into the body of Christ. We are united with Christ. And that Romans chapter 6 verse 3 verse will help you on that one. We are united with Christ and as a result of that, we're part of the body of Christ. Okay, so we so that is the purpose of spirit baptism. No place in Scripture are we told to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, to seek it, to pray for it, to want it. Uh, scripture says clearly, indicative, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. And that purpose is to bring you into the body of Christ, not to give you more power, not to make you elitist over other Christians, uh, not to, to speak in tongues, 
but to bring you into the body of Christ. So that's very important, I think, that we grasp that. Uh, I want to I stop here for a second because I'm really blowing through this. A lot of material. Is there any question of clarification in particular that you have that would help us, that would help you in understanding what's being said? Are you, are you on page? Okay. But we'll... I think you should repeat one more time. Okay. One more time. Repeat the purpose of the baptism of the Spirit. What is it? Okay. 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 If somebody asks me what the bapt, and this is always good, folks, make sure you know where to go to in Scripture. Okay. So, so it's not my idea versus your idea. And all you got to do is remember First Corinthians twelve thirteen. That, that's the central passage. It's really the only major passage. It, it tells you as clearly as can be what is the purpose of baptism of the Holy Spirit to bring us into un- unity with Christ and His people. Okay, And what I do, by the way, in my Bible, I don't know if you like to do this, but I'm, I write all over my Bibles. And I put corresponding passages right there. So all i got to do is remember 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Then I have written down Romans 6, 3 and Galatians 3, 27, passages that help. So it's right there. Because I'm not one of these great rememberers. I, I just need to remember one passage. And by the way, in just a moment, uh, just a very quick moment, uh, we're going to look at the only passage in Scripture that tells us the purpose of tongues. There's only one. It's not hard. One passage. So when we get there, you're, all you got to do is remember that. Is that good? Okay, let's do that. Let's go to tongues. The two big dis- uh, distinctions of the Pentecostal charismatic people is the belief of the baptism, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, Okay, I, I, I've got to, I'm sorry. I need to tell you one more thing on the baptism because you might run into this. How do, how do good Christian people who are in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, how do they get around the clear instruction of Scripture that there's one baptism and is for the purpose of unity with Christ and bringing us to the body of Christ? Here's how they do that, in, in all honesty and sincerity. They say there, the, there are two kinds of baptism in Scripture, of the Holy Spirit. The first one is right here in our passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and that's the baptism with power. No, I mean, that's baptism of repentance. They call it baptism of repentance, and all Christians have that. So they don't deny that. All Christians have that. And, they, and look at the preposition. We can't do a great deal of analyzation here, but notice the word uh, in my, my translation for by the Holy the One Spirit. That, that's pivotal. In the English, by. Go over now to Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Here is what they believe is the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. They would agree with us about the first one. They add a second one based upon this passage and some others. Look at the verse, first, Acts 1.5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, notice, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Now, in the New American Standard, your translation might be a little different. I think the King James is that. It says with. So here's what they would say. You can be, everybody's baptized by the Holy Spirit. But the second baptism is with the Holy Spirit. And when we get the baptism with the Holy Spirit, we will speak in tongues and have these power, this power. Got that? But now go back. That's an English rendering. In the Greek, the word with in 1 Corinthians 12 and the word, I mean by in 1 Corinthians 12 and the word with in Acts chapter 1 is the exact same Greek word. It's E-N. That's not a hard Greek word. Even I can pronounce that. In. Okay? In. It, it should, it, it's the same word. You can't build two doctrines on the same word. The same preposition. But the reason it was done that way, primarily, I think, is the early Pentecostals were not scholars. They were very simple people who read their English Bible. They saw two different prepositions, and they made two different doctrines out of it. And today, many still follow that same line of reasoning. So that's the sincere reason why many would say there is a second baptism. It's with, not by. Okay? And the best way to help somebody through that is, is to point it out. I mean, you, you got uh, little, little apps on your Bible, uh, on your uh, phone. Uh, what is it, the sword? Uh, is that the right name of it? You, do you know what app I'm talking about? You don't? Okay. See, I'm no, uh, I'm no technician here. I'll be lucky to find my phone. But, uh, okay, I have several Bible apps on my phone. This is really handy stuff, folks. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. You just got to turn to eSword. eSword, it's based on King James. And it gives you every word in the Bible. And beside it is the Greek on the Strong's Concordance, the Greek meaning of that word. And if you poke that little Greek meaning, it will bring up the, what the Greek is in English. And you can see it for yourself. You don't, so that's the only, you know, there's other great apps out there. And this is one I use, when I, this is when a simple one for Greek. You don't have to have a whole library of Greek books to do that. Just get your eSword, it's free, and flop that on your, on your phone. Now, if you don't know how to turn your phone on, forget everything I just said, all right? But if you do, then uh, pretty easy stuff, okay? All right. Does that make sense? You're understanding that? Okay, let me go now to the next thing, the purpose of biblical tongues. What is the purpose? And I could go through a lot of stuff here. Um, and we're not probably going to get through all this material before the next break, but let's go, let's go through some of it. What, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is where we want to be. Now, something I want to point out to you, uh, if you're struggling in this area, you're working through this in yourself, uh, the main, matter of fact, virtually the only teaching on tongues in the epistles is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. All right, so you want to be a student of that. So go back and read it. And here, here's the key. As, you go, as you're reading Scripture, make sure you're in context. And, as, and if you know anything about the Corinthian church and 1 Corinthians, you know that this is a church that is a mess. And all the way through the book, from all this chapter one, all the way through, every chapter virtually is a corrective. He is telling them they're wrong in what they're doing. Uh, 
here's how to change. And that does not change when we come to the gifts. Chapter 12, he talks about the gifts, the spiritual gifts. And he says, you people are so selfish. Everybody wants to be the eyeball. You know, everybody wants to be the big shot. And he said, God didn't create the body like that. The, the physical body, just like the spiritual body, is made up of many, many parts. And God, God sovereignly chose what part you would play and gifted you for that. He said, quit chasing after the showy gifts and be content with what God has given you. Okay? That's chapter 12. Chapter 13 is not a, a chapter written to be read at weddings. You know, even though it, it's wonderful. The whole thing is corrective. Here's your problem. Chapter 12, you're a bunch of selfish brats. Chapter 13, you change by being a lover of people instead of being selfish. So, so in the context, and we're going to look at chapter 13 later on, on the ceasing of the gifts, but, but he, he's simply saying, even there's, if you look, just look on your book here and your Bible, when he starts going down to verse 8 on down, he's still in the context of gifts. Supernatural gifts. But he's talking before he gets into that, he says, you know, it's far more important that you love one another than you have the choice of gifts. That's the context. Okay? Corrective. You're wrong. You're selfish brats. You need to change by love. Chapter 14 is not. He doesn't jettison everything he's doing and suddenly say, now, here's what I want you. Here's how I want you to speak in tongues. This is, this is a great gift. We want you to use it. Chapter 14 from the verse, verse 1 on is a corrective. You're doing it all wrong. You're taking a gift that was still in existence at that time, and you're using it selfishly. You're using it wrongly. Every aspect of what you're doing with tongues is wrong. From verse 1 all the way through, that's what he's saying. Okay? So if you, if you look at it from that angle, because I can... It, to preach through chapter 14 would probably take me... See, your pastor's been on Matthew for how long? Four years? Okay. So if he was preaching through this, it would take me at least six months, right? Okay, so I don't know if I... I it would probably take me three months of careful exegesis and sermons to work through this chapter properly. So I'm going to do it in three minutes. All right? For, okay, I'm just going to get you going, get you thinking and looking at it. So here we go. From this chapter mostly, those who believe in tongues today come up with several possibilities on why it's in existence. Number one, to edify the church. Okay? That's the very thing Paul says is not, can't happen. The first, uh, you know, first five verses, he says, no, I'm not going to read it to save time. No one is edified by hearing a tongue they don't understand. It has no purpose whatsoever in the church unless, as he says later, it's interpreted. No purpose. So don't stand up at church and speak in tongues if there's not an interpretation. Not, in, not has no purpose whatsoever. Number two, and, and historically that has been the case. People have spoken tongues when they shouldn't have. Evangelism. This is a great tool for evangelism because when you speak in these super, this, this heavenly language, that, that I've learned, then people will be attracted to Christ. Oh, really? Well, let's see what verse uh, 23 says about that. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are crazy? It's where it is mad, but I like crazy. 
You're nuts. A bunch of weirdo nuts over there. That's, that's your evangelism for you. Not very good for evangelism. Okay? Really not. Uh, and that, you know, that's what Paul says. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Number three, uh, proof of spirit baptism. Well, we've already looked at that carefully. And we see that that's not ever the case. Uh, number four is probably the biggest one, devotional. Okay, I'm not going to speak in tongues at church. Uh, I'm not going to do it out loud. I'm not going to try to evangelize. But I go to my prayer closet at home and I, and I pray in this unknown language. And, uh, it, it, and universally what people say with that, by the way, and by the way, these are people that do that. Maybe some of you do that. These are sincere people, usually. They're not trying to, to, to do anything wrong. They, they love Christ. And universally, the, the, what they get out of it, because they don't understand it either. They don't know what they're saying. Universally, what they get out of that is a feeling of closeness to God. That, they're having, that the Lord is somehow speaking through them or in them, and they feel an experience of closeness to God. So that's the draw of that. Okay, so does that hold water biblically would be the point. Verses 14 and 15 is a usual passage used for that. Remember, it's in a corrective. He's correcting them. And he says in verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now he's speaking about a, a tongue not, not interpreted. Okay? So if I'm going to speak in this language I don't even understand, then my spirit uh, prays. You know, I'm, I'm sincere. But I don't understand what I'm saying, so my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then, he says in verse 15? What should I do? This is important. I will pray with the Spirit and, and the ESV says but, same Greek word, means the same thing. I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Also. Get that carefully. Take a good look. He's not saying, here's some options. I could pray in the Spirit in tongues. Don't understand it. That's okay. Because I feel close to God, and that's okay. He doesn't say that. He said, if I'm going to pray in the Spirit, even in tongues, which we'll see in a moment, there's a purpose. Uh, If I'm going to do that, I'm also going to pray intellectually so I know what I'm saying. And without knowing what I'm saying, then it's unfruitful. It's, it's not, it doesn't have any value, see? And so when he uses the, these words and here, I will do both, not, not one or the other, I'll do both, and uses the word also, he is not saying there's two different kinds of praying. One intellectual and one spiritual. He is saying they're combined. My prayer should be in the spirit, and that doesn't have to be tongues at all, it just that my, I'm praying with my spirit, my inward being, my heart, and I'm also praying with intellect. So when I'm praying, for example, I've got a prayer list. We, I don't know if you do this here. We have a prayer list that we give out on, uh, once a month on Wednesday nights of, of, of the biggest needs in our church. And I can go through that prayer list like, like a list grocery list. Pick up potatoes, get some milk, you know, pray for Charlie, blah, blah, blah. And it means nothing to me. I just repeated words on a page. Or I could pray for Charlie, who, by the way, there is a Charlie in my church dying right now, and I could pray for Charlie with my heart. That's what he's calling for, a heartfelt intellectual prayer. There is no place in Scripture that talks about unintellectual praying. 
It's always with the mind. And so this is a corrective. So devotional thing does not hold up in my opinion. I do know that when you, if somebody, that is taken away from somebody who's been doing it, it can be very difficult because they feel like they've lost some connection with God. So I'm going to put out my paper a little bit of what the Holy Spirit does. And for you that struggle with that, this might be helpful to you. Okay? Then let's go on. There's two more. I want to throw both of them up there. And I'm going to start with number six. Uh, tongues are for apostolic, apostolic uh, authentication. I want you to go to two passages very quickly. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And we're coming right back to 1 Corinthians 14, so don't lose it. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Very, very important passage on uh, the apostles and how people knew they were apostles. Paul, writing again to the Corinthians who were doubting, was doubting his apostleship, says, For the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now what is the sign of an apostle? Signs and wonders and miracles. When we have the Pentecostal-slash-charismatic movement that says everybody should have these sign gifts, or most people, what does this verse mean? He was saying it was a sign of an apostle. Everybody in the church was not performing miracles. Okay, now one of the sign gifts, and notice the word sign, that's important. Signs point to something. They point to something. One of the sign gifts was tongues. Now we know other people spoke in tongues, so what could he be saying? Go back to our passage in Acts chapter 8 again. Remember we, we saw the Samaritans getting saved in Acts chapter 8. We do not see them speaking in tongues, but they might very well have done so. But we do see the authority of the apostles in verse 15 to 17 that I read to you a moment ago. Uh, they, they had not received the Holy Spirit. And in verse 17, the apostles went down and laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. A sign of the apostleship, that they have the power and the authority to give these folks the Holy Spirit. No one else had that power. Even Philip, who had brought them to Christ, did not have that power. So a sign of an apostle was this authority that was there. So I believe to some degree, secondary degree, that the purpose of, of tongues is as a sign of the authentication of the apostles. Showed who they were. No one spoke in tongues in Scripture. We know unless an apostle was present and given them that ability. But that is not the main purpose of tongues. So we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And look at the passage of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians 14. Now again, folks, you don't have to know the whole Bible here. If you're questioning this or, or dealing with somebody, all you need to know is this verse. It is the only place in the New Testament that tells us the purpose of tongues. The only place. We see examples of it in Acts, but we already saw. You can't build a doctrine on Acts. We see it talked about here in Corinthians, but that's just talked about and it's corrected. Now he tells us why God did it to begin with. 
And so this is the verse, the go-to verse that we deal with. First of all, verse 20, Brother, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now grow up, don't be babies, grow up in your thinking. And then he says this, and you're going to need to think. He's telling them already, he's warning them. You'll need to think to understand this, but it's understandable. Verse 21, the law is written by men of strange tongues, by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are, are for a sign, here it is, what? A sign of what? Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, for prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, he says very clearly tongues has a purpose, it's a sign of something. A sign of what? Verse 21 is the key. Go back. He didn't just pull a verse of Scripture out of Isaiah without any purpose. He takes them back to a passage. I'm going to give you these passages because they say the same thing. Isaiah chapter 28, 11 and 12. Also 33, 19. Deuteronomy 28. Uh, verses 49 and 50, Jeremiah 5, 15. Put those in your notes if you want to. Go back and look at them. To save time, we won't. He quotes Isaiah in, uh, in this passage. What was, in the context of Isaiah, what was Isaiah saying? He was saying this. Israel, when you come to the place when you have so rejected God that you're taken into exile, and you now hear people speaking languages you have never heard and don't understand, then you will know that God has condemned you, God is judging you for your sin. And the sign of knowing that is hearing these languages you do not understand. Languages you've never heard before. He plugs that in here to this. And he says, when tongues is telling the unbelieving Jew... Because the context is the Jew in Isaiah. Tongues is telling the unbelieving Jew that God's judgment is upon them for the rejection of Jesus Christ. Ten years after this, or thereabouts, Israel would be destroyed. Jerusalem would be razed to the ground. And the Jews spread out all over the world to 1948. I believe, based upon that, tongues ceased in 70 A.D. When the, when the confirmation of tongues was complete, tongues said, they, they were hearing tongues, these unbelieving Jews were hearing these tongues they didn't understand, and it was a sign to them that God was bringing judgment upon them for the rejection of their Messiah. And when that sign was complete, and they were spread out, and they were in these all over the world in places they didn't understand languages. When that happened, tongues had no longer a purpose. It's a, so if we go back one page, I know this is a bit complicated, but I want you to think it through. Uh, number five, the purpose of tongues is a condemnation upon the Jewish people for the rejection of Jesus Christ. That's why it came. Yeah. I 
Did I say that I get the wrong passage? Okay, you're right. I gave you the wrong verse. I'm sorry. I was thinking of the first Corinthians twelve thirteen. No, it's verse twelve. You're right. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's a good thing to note. Okay. Okay. Very quickly, I want to close this part out. Uh, we can talk about this. I know this is hard. All sign gifts are temporary. When you go to Acts chapter sixteen, verse twenty, and, and I mean Mark sixteen twenty. Uh, a passage of scripture we're not sure was in scripture. It's a, it's a contested passage. Nevertheless, as Mark or whoever wrote that looks back, he's looking at those who in the past had performed these miracles. Hebrews two and Acts tw- Acts twenty eight thirty three to nine is the last miracle that we see in scripture. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter two though for a second. Hebrews two verses three to four. Verse 3. <clears throat> how, will, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, notice that, by, both by signs and wonders and various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Who's the them? It's the apostles. It's past tense. He said, when they had heard the truth... God confirmed it that they were the spokesmen for God by giving them these signs and miracles. Okay? He's talking about a group of people in the past at that passage. <clears throat> so we find then, it's interesting, you can't build a doctrine on this, but it's interesting that as we get towards the end of the New Testament era, that miracles are starting to not show up as much. In 60 AD, Epaphroditus is sick and Paul doesn't heal him. In 1 Timothy 5, Timothy has stomach problems and Paul doesn't heal him. In, uh, in 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul left, left Thophemus sick and he doesn't heal him. Why, why is it when the Apostle Paul could heal all these people earlier, he's not doing it now? Uh, we're, we're, I think we're catching the idea here that some of these things are starting to fade away as the church is getting established. Okay, I'm going to stop there uh, and look at uh, some more of this after the hour break. Any quick questions like, like yours over there? It's a good question. Any quick clarification things? Yes? Um, in the ESV, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verse 4, it says, um, it gives an interpretive, and it says, by signs as opposed to with them, that. Is there any way that you might be able to speak to that? <clears throat> uh, read, read, uh, read ESV. Uh, it says, <clears throat> first of all, while God also bore witness by signs and <clears throat> Okay. It's still pointing back to a group of people before. I, I, I agree. The, the, yeah. the NET that uh, says, while God confirmed their witness yeah. with signs, which, which it indicates that uh, it's referring back to them. Yes. Uh, so, 
Yeah. So even though ESV chose not to use that word, that's that's still pointing back to the right. apostles. Yeah. Yes. It was a sign, according to these passages I gave you a bit ago, that um, it was simply a sign that God gave them. Matter, matter of fact, I wish we had a little more time. Deuteronomy, all the way back in Deuteronomy, before they ever went into the land, God said the day would come when you reject me, and you will, you will, uh, the sign that I am judging you, and this is simply not that you didn't have a good army, the sign that I'm judging you is you're going to be going sent to places where you don't know their language. And... and and the same thing in Isaiah and Jeremiah. So we, that wouldn't mean much to us if Paul hadn't chose to use Isaiah as his proof text. Those were known uh, no, in the Old Testament, it was just going to Babylon or, or someplace like that and hearing languages they didn't know. But when they got there, see, God promised to protect them, but they walked with him. And when they got there, the, the fact they couldn't understand these people was a sign that God had sent them there under judgment. That, exactly. It's a little bit the same. One of the reasons that Christ spoke in parables is that they would have ears, but they couldn't hear. They, they didn't get to the same. Yeah. It was actually part of their judgment for their rejection of Christ. That's right. That's right. So it's a similar concept, right? Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Yeah. These here? Uh, those are the, uh, as far as I know, those are the standard explanations for tongues. Okay, which ones uh, Number five and six. Number, number five is definitely the key one. Six, secondary. But the first four, I believe, are all false. They, they would be able to, yeah. But when we come to Corinthians, these people, remember, they're speaking in these languages that the church couldn't understand. Okay? Or unless there was an interpreter. We'll get a minute, we'll look at interpretation. So apparently by this time, these people could speak in these languages that people could not understand. They had to be interpreted at this point. But they were languages. They were not gibberish. They were languages. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14, 18. It was prior to 70 AD. Paul spoke in tongues as a, for the very purpose he says it was given, as a sign to the Jews of condemnation coming upon them. So Paul didn't, I don't think Paul normally did this in a church. He's kind of condemning that here. I think he used it in case around Jewish people, perhaps in the synagogues and stuff, as a sign to them of what God is saying. I don't know exactly where he used it, to tell you the truth, but he would use it according to the purpose it was given. But it would make, but it would make sense in light of his missionary movement yes. that he would be around many Jewish people, Always. many Jewish unbelievers, at least at that time when he faced them. And yeah. so him speaking in tongues would be a judgment to them. Yes, yeah. good, good point. And so when we follow Paul in Acts, he always goes to the synagogue first. Right. So he always had that opportunity. Uh, so I think that's where he would have used it. It was a known language, but they wouldn't necessarily have understood it. At, at Pentecost, they did. 
But but it, we we see by the time by First Corinthians fourteen, apparently people could speak in a known language, but nobody could understand it because there wasn't wasn't an interpretation. Okay, yeah. Well, it's specifically written to the Jews, a prophecy to the Jews. So that's why I think it, that's why it would cease by 70 AD when the Jews, this condemnation actually came on them. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take about a five minute break or whatever. You got it? All right. I've received several questions on your cards. Um, all but two of them so far are things I'm going to cover yet today. So I'll let those go for right now. If you still have questions later, we can look at it. But there are, here's two questions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, tongues of men and of angels. So what, I guess, is this tongues of angels? And uh, so you hear of people going off to a retreat to get a, get a heavenly language or that type of thing. But think about this for a moment. Uh, what kind of language did, did angels speak? Do, do angels have tongues? Do angels have mouths? Do angels have ability to speak in that way? Not in themselves. They're spirits. So when angels spoke in the scriptures, they took on human form of some kind, physical form. And when they spoke, they spoke perfectly. That's his point. Perfect language. They didn't stutter. They didn't mess up words. They didn't mix them up. When angels spoke, they spoke perfectly. So what he's saying there, basically, if I could speak as perfectly as an angel who takes on human form, wouldn't mean a thing if I didn't love. So that's his point. Secondly, uh, what is the fivefold gospel in Baptist churches? And I, I'm assuming they're meaning here the fivefold ministry. I assume that's what they mean in, in Baptist churches. Uh, the fivefold ministry is the belief, it's a Pentecostal movement, the New, New Apostolic Reformation, that believes... Uh, that all, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, there are five gifted men, apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, pastor, teacher. The fivefold ministry is a belief that all five of those ministries have been restored to the church today. Uh, the, we would, of course, agree with a pastor, teacher, some, be, some break that up and say that's two gifts, Two kinds of gifted people. Some say it's one. We're not going to argue that today. Uh, evangelists, those are gifts today. But what about apostles and prophets? Historically, the Pentecostal movement has always believed in prophets from the very beginning. Additional revelation to Scripture. But historically, the, the, the Pentecostal charismatic circles have not believed in the restoration of apostleship. The fivefold ministry has now brought that back. And so the fivefold ministry to say we have apostles now. And the reason we have apostles is because we need a new word from God. We need new leadership like the apostles had. And so these apostles have authority far beyond your pastor. And your pastor is his only authority is based really in the scriptures. These people are above scripture. They are like the true apostles were. And so they can command. You know, Paul commanded. We don't command except the Scripture commands. The apostles can, can command. Also, you come under, now you've heard this word if you're around Pentecostal circles at all, they come, you come under the covering of an apostle. 
That means the protection of. So if you come under a particular apostle, you're under the covering of that apostle. And if you step outside of his authority, you pay the consequences. He has the ability to do horrible things into, in your life. So these apostles are, are an upper echelon. They're like Paul and Peter. Okay, We don't believe that there's any such thing as the, the, the restoration of the apostleship. There were 12 apostles. Uh, when they were gone, not, as they died out, nobody replaced them in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 21, uh, it, when we speak it about the, the uh, New Jerusalem there, there are, it mentions the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There are no other official apostles of Christ except for the 12. Okay, so those have not been restored in my opinion at all. What about Baptist churches? This is not a Pentecostal church. It's a Baptist church. Here's what's happening now. Why I've written a paper on our website on this movement is that there's, there's this new movement and books being written to take this fivefold ministry into Baptist, Bible, those type of churches, evangelical churches that are not Pentecostal. And are basically saying you need to you need to get to have all these gifts personally, and here's how to do it. So this is a quite a big movement, really. I mean, you're going to hear more about it. You're going to have friends in other churches or whatever who claim that they are apostles and they're prophets, and they're restoring these fivefold ministries in their local church. And many churches are going to promote that. So that's what I think you're talking about there. Uh, and those are those are happening in our our more non-charismatic circles today. Okay, so those are the ones. We'll look at these others later. What we're going to look at now, and two people asked this question. And this is, okay, I said 70 AD is when I believed uh, these things ceased, these gifts, or the tongues ceased. On what basis, uh, biblically, do I stand? Where do I come from on that? This is not in our notes. It's not in your notes? This is not in our notes, right? I don't know. I don't. <laughs> is it in there? Okay, this is extra. This, you don't have to pay for this. It's all extra stuff. Um, I, I, I thought I had it in there, but that's fine. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> Now, after lunch, I'm going to talk to you about uh, why I believe that prophecy has ceased for today. That's not my topic now. So if you want to do that one, you don't need to fill out a card. We'll, we'll get to that after lunch. But notice in, in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and look at verses 3 to 8, there are... Well, let me start. Let me start with the perfect. Okay, <clears throat> verse eight. Go to verse eight. Tongue, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Okay. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I become a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. Okay, 
we see clearly, there's no, there's no question even among Pentecostals that I know of, that the day comes, verse 8, when prophecy, tongues, and knowledge is gone. When there's no more purpose for them, right? So, what is he, speaking in context here, prophecy is supernatural revelation God gives, His Word given to people. Knowledge would be, this is where the Pentecostal get their, their subject, the Word of Knowledge. It, it would be very similar to prophecy. Matter of fact, just listening to these uh, sermons I was talking about earlier, they don't distinguish between prophecy and Word of Knowledge. It's, it's the same basic thing. So it's supernatural knowledge that you wouldn't have unless God gave it to you. All right? And there's tongues. Okay, so, and, there, and it says here, verse, verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And verse 9, for I know in part and I prophesy in part. Okay, this is a little tough, so you get your brains going. I want you, first of all, to note that in verse 9, he doesn't mention tongues. He only mentions prophecy and supernatural knowledge. All right, so here's our question. What does this perfect mean when the perfect comes? There are three standard views about what this means. Number one, the rapture. When the rapture comes, then the church is gone and there's no more need for any of these gifts. The problem with that, biblically, is we find prophecy after the rapture. The two prophets in Revelation, they're prophets. So you've got a problem unless you're not a pre-tribber. Okay, so, which I am. So, I think, uh, I don't think rapture is the right answer. The canon, that's a, that's a closure of scripture. And the eternal state. That is, the eternal state would mean Christ comes back and ushers in eternity. There's no more, obviously every, every Pentecostal is okay with that one. That if, that's, if that's it, then we're all okay with that. Alright, so that's a possibility. The, uh, the, the, one, the canon, however, is another real possibility. And personally, as I have dealt with this issue, thought this issue through over the years, my position has changed from eternal state to canon. I believe he's saying here, and I'm going to prove that after lunch. <laughs> he's got to come back, you know. He's got to come back. After lunch, I'll tell you why. Uh, not just on this scripture alone. If this was the only scripture I have, I'm going to scratch my head and say maybe. But I got other scripture, okay? But uh, but I believe he's talking about scripture. When when the scripture is complete, there's no longer a need for prophecy or additional words of knowledge or revelation. Now, why have I shifted to that position? Because in verse nine, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the return of Christ. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about supernatural gifts of prophecy and knowledge. That's a whole context. And so, he, so to me, the context is saying the perfect is when we no longer need additional revelation, then the perfect has come. The, the complete. The word perfect means complete. Sometimes it's translated complete. Yeah. I don't know if somebody has ESV how they translated it, actually. Somebody have that? I didn't look it up. Perfect, Perfect okay. It, it can mean complete, though. So when the complete is here, when all that God wants us to know is here, doesn't mean there isn't more God could have told us. 
but he's given us all he wants us to know, when that's done, there's no longer any purpose for prophecy and additional revelation. Matter of fact, that just confuses things, right? And that's what I'll talk about later. I'll see you after lunch again. Is when we have people stand up and say, I have a word from God. How do you know it's from God? Okay, that's an issue. Well, when the complete is, a, is a, the, the, the perfect has come, prophecy and additional revelation is over. Okay? He doesn't say that about tongues. Now, once again, you've got to be a careful Bible student here. Uh, in the, in the, looking at this, they will be, it says in verse 8 that prophecy will be done away. Even in English, you can follow this. Prophecy will be done away and knowledge will be done away. But it says the same thing about both of them, and they're both in a passive mood. That part you couldn't get from, it, from reading your English necessarily. But you could kind of, because done away, to be done away means that something happened that caused them to stop. Something came along. A passive meaning it happened to them. Something came along and stopped them. I believe that's a closure of Scripture. Okay? But tongues, it doesn't say it'll be done away. It says it will cease. There's a clear distinction between when tongues stops and prophecy stops. They will cease. And it's in the middle voice, which means it will cease in and of itself. English does not have a middle voice. So it's a little complicated. Let me give you an example. Active, the man threw the ball. Passive. The ball was thrown to the man. Middle. The man threw himself. You don't use that. We don't have a middle voice. The man threw himself. Okay? But that's what he's doing here. He's saying, the, if we go back there, tongues is not going to be stopped by some outside force. It's going to cease in and of itself when? When its purpose is fulfilled. When was his purpose fulfilled? When 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22 said its sign has been fulfilled. It was a condemnation of the Jews for rejection of the Messiah. The, the tongues was telling these people that they were condemned for what they had done. And when they had actually gone into exile, that condemnation had been brought to completion. Um, Someone asked me, a couple of people asked me, well, what about, does that mean that Paul didn't want them to understand the gospel? No, this is, when he went into the synagogues and spoke in tongues, and the people, they, they knew their Old Testament, by the way. They, they were very biblically based. They knew their Old Testament. When they heard Paul doing that, their mind immediately went back to Isaiah 28. And they knew that Paul was basically saying to them, God's condemnation is upon you. Why? Because they had killed their Messiah. Was that to keep them from coming to the Messiah? I don't think so. For those the Lord drew to himself, uh, they now recognized they were condemned by God and their only hope was to come to Christ. And by the way, all evangelism is there. Until you convince people of their sin, they'll never come to Christ. So don't try to, you know, a whole different subject. Don't try to evangelize by telling people how great it's going to be when they get saved. Don't, don't tell them you get saved, your marriage is going to be healed, you're going to lose weight, your, your acne is going to go away, you're going to be joyful and happy and no longer lonely. Those things could happen, but that's not the gospel, folks. 
The gospel is you are in your sin. You're separated from a holy God because of it. You have no hope until you recognize your sinfulness and you turn from your sin to Christ by faith alone that you're going to get saved. So the gospel is about sin and your alienation from Christ. So the tongue, I mean, the sign gifts of tongue work in exactly that way to the Jews. He is saying you are condemned by God because of your sin and the ultimate uh, evidence of that is you killed the Messiah. Now, are you going to continue in that sin and be condemned? Or are you going to turn to Jesus Christ? So that's what I think the purpose of tongues was. And it had a great purpose at the time for those, those Jews. And they went into exile, and then they didn't need the sign anymore because they had the concrete evidence they were in exile. All right, I hope that helps a little bit. Um, popping on a little bit here. Uh, one of the interesting things, we don't prove scripture, we don't prove theology by church history, but it doesn't hurt to look at it. Uh, we find as we go through uh, early church history that virtually none of the church fathers said much, if anything, about tongues. A couple of these guys, Montanus did, by the way. Montanus believed in it. But Montanus was a heretic. So go back and look at him. He's the only one in the early church history that he, he believed in all the signed gifts, but he was a rank heretic. All right? And uh, the others there, a couple of them said they had heard about it or seen it. Most of them said it's, it's not even available in their time at all. They don't even know about it. So throughout church history, you have these things pop up once in a while, but usually it's a heretical group. A Jensenites is another group later on that spoke in tongues. They were a heretical group, didn't believe in orthodox theology, spoke in tongues, and so forth. So that's, uh, church history tells us until 1901, we have no, no, body, no body or very few of anybody's, certainly no groups of people who spoke in tongues. Until 1901. From, from the closure of the, old, of the scriptures to the, to the end, to 1901. There's, it's a blank. So uh, that's, that says something, right? So the Pentecostals originally said, you know, yeah, this is a restoration of the sign gifts. It didn't happen for 1900 years, but now it's happening now. So that's, that would have been their theology. The, um, so we've got to ask some questions. We got the modern tongue movement. Is this in your notes, by the way? You got those somewhere? I don't know. No? This isn't there either? Oh. Oh, well. Write it in there somewhere. Okay, if you want to. Okay, what's going on? There is no doubt that something's going on. Okay? So you don't, we just can't say, you know, I hear all the time UFOs. Because you know how many, you know about a third of Americans believe in UFOs? About, about millions that claim they've seen them. Some claim they've gone up in their spaceships. I don't believe them. Okay, I don't, I don't believe it. Okay? But I can't say, I can't look at this and say, nothing's happening. Something's happening. So we need to analyze that. Number one, the nature of tongues. What is the nature of tongues? First of all, we've already said this, it's whatever it is today is not what it was in the scriptures. If there was languages in the scriptures, it's not languages today. Uh, linguistic experts have analyzed tongue speaking all over the globe, and they have not found any evidence of a known language. Um, 
people have faked tongues. It's easy to fake it, and it doesn't hold up as a language. Uh, even the even a gibberish style of, of language doesn't show up as a, a language. So it is not what happened in Scripture. That much we know. Uh, Secondly, the absence of spontaneity. This may not always be the case, but normally it's learned. You're going to, and, and somebody did ask a question about, uh, they have, a couple times they have spoken in tongues, uh, and once in salvation, once later, no, no other time. What, what would that be? And folks, first of all, I can't explain everybody's experience, because everybody has experiences, and you just can't explain everything, but... More than, more than likely, it follows this pattern, and that is this. Uh, you, you, somebody has, has taught you in one form or the other how to do this. So, so it's very, very common for people to have retreats uh, or classes or whatever to teach you how to speak in tongues. And that's, that's something that did not, once again, happen in the Bible. Nobody had classes on how to speak in tongues. Uh, nobody, nobody had anything along that line. Okay, um, they were, you know, we, we have a group in our church, not in our church, but the people in our church that know some people that uh, right now are at a retreat to get their heavenly language, their prayer language. They're going. What, now, if it was of God, is in, in Scripture, it just happened. These folks have to go to learn how to do it. Um, I'm here, I've got many examples in my study here of this. Uh, one one uh, charismatic person says, here is, here is how I, I teach people to do this. Lay back, shut your eyes, relax, breathe deeply, listen to the sounds of your breathing as you relax, and you can feel yourself getting tired and drowsy. That's kind of most of you right now, probably. Okay, so don't shut your eyes and lean back. Uh, uh, Here's another one. Uh, Think visually, concretely, rather than abstractly. For example, try to visualize Jesus as a person. By the way, that's that's word of faith, and it's also new age. That is not biblical. Don't visualize Jesus. There's a reason Jesus, we don't have a picture of Jesus. There's a a reason we're not supposed to visualize. It's very close to breaking of the first two commandments. Okay, don't visualize Jesus. You don't know what he looks like. If somebody said they have a dream and I saw Jesus, what, what did he look like? Huh, sounds a whole lot like the devil to me. Are you sure that was Jesus? You don't know what Jesus looked like. Don't do that. Co- secondly, constantly lead, uh, yield your voices and organs of speech to the Holy Spirit. I'm yielding to the Holy Spirit. Then, repeat certain elementary sounds such as ba, 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 or something similar. Then, then he said he, he laid his hands on the speaker and they began to speak in tongues. Uh, those kinds of testimonies are extremely common. Normally it's a learned response that you've been trained to. I have people in my church who do not believe in speaking in tongues who can speak in tongues because they have been in churches in the past where they learned it. So they can stand up and do it. But it's not a not from God. It's certainly it's completely of themselves. Um, another reason is disillusionment or fear uh, those that are around people that do believe in speaking in tongues and who are saying that it is a sign of the baptism of the Spirit and a sign of a second blessing from God and a sign of an elite spirituality to do these things, if you're in that environment 
and you're not speaking in tongues, that's, that's a lot of pressure. You know, I'm not there. So I'm, I'm one of the people in the outs. I'm not in the ins. And that's hard. And so but some people will feel that. And they will, as a result of that, some people will think, of all the, of all the, sign, of all the gifts, none is easier to fake than tongues. You know, you can, you can fake it. Uh, but you can't really fake prophecy if you give a real prophecy and it doesn't come true. But if I, if I want to speak in a gibberish manner, I could do that. And then one more thing is interpretation. Uh, those who have done some independent studies of this have taken tongue speaking, recorded it, given it to numerous people who claim they have the gift of interpretation, and not once did they come up with the same interpretation. Uh, George Gardner, who I mentioned a long time ago, said when he was in his movement, the thing that really kicked him over the edge is he stood up in his Bible college, where they were, was a Pentecostal Bible college. He and his friend could, knew, knew Yiddish, and they quoted the 23rd Psalm in Yiddish, and the typical person, like some gal that usually stood up and gave, profit, gave interpretation, stood up and said something about the boys are being too, too uh, worldly, uh, they need to go to bed more often, uh, earlier in the night and, and quit watching so much television and he said down he said that was the day I knew that this wasn't real you know it, you can you can fake tongues you can't fake interpretation if you have independent people interpreting the same thing so uh, so these things show the modern tongues movement are not in my opinion what it was in the scriptures Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 now, once again. First Corinthians 14. <clears throat> this is the key passage. Study it carefully. Remember, it's a corrective. <clears throat> and... Um, Let's, let's kind of read, read some selective verses. Verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and great is the one who prophesies, the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may receive edification. And I'm going to skip through this next one and go to verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one of you have a psalm, have a teaching, have a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three. And each in turn, let one interpret. It, and then verse 28 and says, But if there are no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But let them, uh, let them subject themselves, just as the law also says. Okay, so looking at these verses, let's go back. Here are some scriptural injunctions that are normally ignored by those in the Pentecostal movement historically. Uh, the scripture says that no more than two or three should speak at a meeting. Uh, so typically in, in such churches you have people all over the place speaking in tongues, doing this, that, or the other, giving prophecies and whatever. Uh, the, the Lord tells it to be very orderly and only two or three at a meeting. So this is not going to go on all day as people get up one after the other and do that. Secondly, oops, uh, one at a time. Verse 27. So this is not chaos. It's not people jumping up all over. It's one, one at a time. One person had the ability to speak in tongues. 
So if someone interpreted, as we'll see, uh, but only one at a time. Number two, number, well, let's, let's stay with that for just one second. What these verses tell us is that these gifts, even the tongues, was under the control of the individual. These people are not going into trances. They're not being overwhelmed by the Spirit, so they're out of control. They are they're under control. Matter of fact, verse 32, if you have your Bibles open, says the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. That means that even the prophets are under control. Nothing, nothing, they're not going into these trances. Now you remember a few years ago, and it's still happening, in the Brownsville Revival and the Toronto Blessing and those clones, people claimed that they went into trances. They fell on the ground. First of all, they were slain in the Spirit. There's no slaying in the Spirit in the Bible. Never mentioned. Uh, they fell on the ground and were stuck by what they said was Holy Ghost glue. They couldn't get off the floor. Some of them would lay there for hours. Some of, them, some of the women were in dresses, and their dresses would come up, and they were immodest. And so they had to come up with a plan. This has been going on forever, by the way, in Pentecostalism. Uh, they had to come up with a plan. They have uh, robes to put over their laps so they're not immodest. That's that, that is what we see here, the Holy Spirit. Some of them claim they barked like dogs, roared like lions, clucked like, well, who clucks? A chicken. Uh, you know, all under the power of the Holy Spirit. Chaos throughout the building. You can go online and see these things anytime you want to. This is anathema to Scripture. And, and why people couldn't see that is beyond me. Even you know, if you're sincerely looking at Scripture and you really think that the power of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in that I can bark like a dog or I can't get off the ground for five hours, if you really think that's the power of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to have to go back and prove that in Scripture. And there's nothing remotely like that. So we have here, when he's talking about these people misusing tongues and other gifts, he says, look, you, you, you're, you're never out of control. You, you are, your, your, pro, your spirit is subject to yourself. God is not, if, when God's in charge, you're not going to act like a nut. Okay? And then there's interpretation. Oops, I keep doing that. The, the interpretation, verse 28, you're, you're not going to um, interpret unless, or you're not going to speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter there. So apparently they knew that somehow. Uh, they didn't just get up and say something or look around and say, is there an interpretation? That's a typical Pentecostal style. Someone stands up, speaks in a tongue, looks around. Is there an interpreter? Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. If there's, but they knew, they knew that going in. And then finally, prohibition. This would kill. I, I can't stop doing it. It's supposed to be animated and it's not. So anyway, prohibition. Verse 34 is anathema to the movement. Because if you know anything about Pentecostalism, it's uh, pretty, pretty dominated by women. Okay? And uh, verse 34 prohibits women from speaking in tongues in the church. So no woman should have ever spoken in tongues in the church, even if they spoke it somewhere else. So these prohibitions and these injunctions have been ignored throughout time. And so that tells us something about what's going on here. Okay? One more verse. Let me look at this one with you. Verse 39. Therefore, my brother, 
desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Most time, these groups go back to that verse. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. Fine. Keep in mind, when tongues are used for the sign God intended for them to be used, don't forbid it. But once that sign was fulfilled, there's no reason to use them today. That would be my understanding of these things. So if that's the case, what is going on today? Uh, number one, uh, basically, this is a learned... Re- well, this is a... a that, that motor automatism, automatism means a trance. Uh, if, you, if you get around these folks, some of them are going in some kind of trance. Something's going on. I, I can't explain that. I do know scripturally this is not what happened. Okay? Uh, ecstasy, just in the enjoyment of the moment, the emotional catharsis of the thing. Some believe the same techniques are used as used in hypnosis. You have an authority figure who tells you you can do this. They, and in many of these cases, if you go to their services, they go on and on with music. Uh, they get you very tired, and then they try to teach you these things. And then basically, uh, basically learn response. I think, I, personally, I think that's where most of this is. People have learned how to do it through various techniques and teaching from various people. I, I honestly cannot explain everybody's experience, because I get that all the time when I'm talking about these things. Well, I had this experience. I had a dream. I had this. I had that. Uh, explain that. And folks, I can't. Because I don't know. Uh, I can only take you back to Scripture and see what it says. But I do know this, that tongues is spoken in all sorts of pagan religions that don't know Christ. Tongues is spoken in Mormonism. Tongues tongues is part of demonic religion, Satanism. Uh, Tongues are not, I'm talking about gibberish. I'm not talking about supernatural ability to speak languages. So that tells me right there that it could be learned in other circles. I'm not accusing anybody of being in those circles. But that does tell me that people can learn how to do this in other circumstances that have no knowledge whatsoever of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you your experience. I know that people, unsaved people, all the time have dreams, think they have visions, claim they've been on UFOs. We have television programs of people chasing Bigfoot who claim they've seen them. Am I, am I going to call all those people liars? Well, not to their face. Uh, but I can't explain all these things. And I don't think I have to. I don't think I can. So I want to take you back to what Scripture actually says. And that's what I'm going to hang my hat on. Okay? So that's kind of where we are with all that. Now I think I can get through this last part before lunch. And that is, okay, someone might say, oh, what about, do you have this in your notes? Yes. All right, we're back on page. I'll blame this on some secretary or somebody, I don't know. Uh, no, it wasn't your secretary. Exactly. No, nope, it was mine. It was mine. My, she's on a cruise right now enjoying life, so she probably was in a hurry. At least I'll blame it on her, right? Okay. Um, Okay, why don't we just live and let live? Right? So why, why make any kind of deal about this at all? And quite frankly, let's, let's not go too far. Let's not paint with this big broad brush. 
say these people are bad, we're good. That's not what we're saying. If you come away with any of that today, let me correct that. These, some of these folks are very sincere, godly people that we would love to have fellowship with. Some of them are way out there and they're, they're causing great damage. Those are different. But the majority of these folk are people that love Christ. I think they're wrong, but they love Christ. Okay? So why don't we just let them do their thing or do their thing? Well, here's the thing. Either they're right or they're wrong. See, I, I just don't have that middle ground to say, well, they're right over here and we're right over here and we're just not going to deal with it. Because it's either biblical or it's not biblical. Right? I mean, ultimately, it, it's got to be either right or wrong. And if they're right, they're teaching a brand of Christianity that says that there are two kinds of Christians, the haves and the have-nots. You are a have if you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit the second time and you speak in tongues or have the sign gifts or whatever. And if you don't have that, then you are a low-level Christian. Okay? And not only that, I'm not really intimidated by that too much. I know I'm a low-level Christian, so that's okay. Uh, what, I, what I want to do, though, is I want all God has for me. And if this is real stuff, if all this is true and all we'll talk about after lunch is true, I want it. If it's not true, then I don't. And so we have to analyze these things. Does the Pentecostal charismatic doctrines and teachings affect anything outside of these experiences? Let me very quickly point out a number of doctrinal areas that it affects. Number one, theology in general. Uh, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, said said this concerning theology. When are we going to see a generation who doesn't try to understand the Bible, they just believe it? Um, Jack Deere said, the idea that fallen humanity can arrive at pure biblical objectivity is, uh, is an illusion. Uh, John Arnett said, do not take control, do not resist, do not analyze, let's just surrender to his love you can analyze the experience later. Just let it happen. So if you're going to have some exotic experience, tongues or whatever, just don't analyze it. Let it happen. Matt Chandler, in the tape I was listening to on the way down, that, that sermon, said something very similar. So it's not gone away. Here, here's what he said. It is more important to live this book, the Bible, than to understand this book. Well, my question is, why not do both? We have only one slogan at our church. We don't have a lot of mission statements. We have it out on a sign. We put it on everything. Learning truth, living truth. Can't we do both? Matt Chandler says it's more important to live it than to understand it. How do you live it if you don't understand it? Now, Matt Chandler's a pretty good dude in a lot of ways. And uh, so that's concerned. So it affects theology in general. Secondly, kind of a corollary of the same, it affects bibliology or the doctrine of the scriptures. Uh, it undermines the authority of the scriptures because it adds extra biblical revelation to it. Do we have the final word of God right here? Or do we need more? And if we need more, then, um, then the Bible is not, not the final authority. There's other authorities out there. Um, by the way, that's the error. I'm not accusing most of these folks of this. But that is the same error of Catholicism. 
and of Mormonism and of all the cults who believe the scriptures are not enough. You have to add to scripture. And so once we do that, once we open that door, uh, where do we go? And then also along with Bibli- in bibliology, uh, they, know, they, they admit their prophets make mistakes. So how do we know what prophet to believe? And then finally, it's a sea of subjectivity that we're on here. Uh, who, you know, we're having all these experiences, but who can determine what's right or wrong if scripture is not the final authority? Soteriology. I think the majority of these folks uh, believe in salvation as we do, but when I read their literature, uh, they very seldom talk about it. Listen, listen to uh, any of these people involved in these things in their programs. They don't talk much about how to be saved. They talk about these powers. Read Joel Osteen's books. Watch him on television. He doesn't talk about how to be saved. He talks about the power you can have if you follow his, his steps. So uh, that, that's typical. There's not much emphasis on that. Uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Uh, Dominion theology has captured the minds of a lot of these people. Uh, with a latter-day revival, the idea that, that before Christ comes back, we must turn the, the world to Christ and basically take over the world for Christ. That's part of much of, of this movement today. It's also highly ecumenical as we are combined, we're joining one another around an, ex, an experience rather than around the scriptures. That's serious. Our experiences should not be what we wrap our lives around and our unity around, it should be the scriptures. Eschatology. Once again, the latter rain believes Christ cannot return until we take over the world for Christ. Think how that plays into even people that do not, are not in this movement when we think we have to vote in the right people in the office. We have to, we have to win, win all the political causes. We have to do all these things in order to bring Christ back. Because Christ is not coming till we get all this done. That's the heart of the social gospel today that's big in our, in our area, that, that we've got we to gotta fix all these problems out there before Christ can come back. So that's eschatology. Pneumatology, well, we've been talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, many believe in this baptism of the Holy Spirit that brings in powers. And one, it's a sign. Uh, the sign of the baptism of the Spirit is powers and wonders and tongues. The Bible says the sign of the Holy Spirit in our life is the fruit of the Spirit. That's very different. And when you miss that and you live your life for these powers and wonders and not for the fruit of the Spirit, your whole Christian life goes out of control. Angelology and demonology, we're not going to have much time on this, but, but most of the movement is heavy into uh, demonology and spiritual warfare. Uh, they'll teach you techniques on how to cast out demons, how to s- pray uh, certain prayers to dominate demons, how to walk around towns and cities and pray uh, prayers that will uh, take over a city for Christ, that type of thing. Uh, dominion, or, uh, dominion theology goes with this, but... Spiritual warfare is at the heart of much of this movement. And their teachings on it are not based on Scripture, but based on experience. If I could say one thing that separates where I think we should be and where many of these are, is they're basing their theologies and their beliefs on an experience, not on Scripture. They have an experience, and then they try to baptize their experience with some Scripture verses. In listening to these convergence, 
conferences, the top Pentecostal leaders today in the Reformed circle. So these are people that know their Bibles, people that are, that are very solid in many ways, but are, but are in the, through the Pentecostal movement, like Jack Deere, Sam Storms, Matt Chandler, uh, uh, Francis Chan. Uh, each of these people are saying the same thing in every one of the sermons I've listened. I've had an experience. I'll tell you about angels showing up in my bedroom. I'll tell you about, about uh, a word from God. I'll tell you about this, that, or the other. And I'm going to baptize with a verse of Scripture. It's based on experience, not Scripture. Experience is good. Don't get rid of experience. Don't get rid of emotions. That's what we're accused of. But don't let those things control your life. That should be the tell the dog, not the dog. Truth, truth controls us. Emotions should follow from that. Okay? And I'm going to lay out after this, before lunch, I'm going to lay out those papers I mentioned. For those of you that might have this question, okay, if the, if the Pentecostals are wrong, and if we're not getting the second work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then what in the world does the Holy Spirit do? That's what this paper's about. And if that is on your mind, you take it. And if we run out of them, maybe the good secretaries here at the church can make some copies. Because my secretary's made 20 copies. All right? So that's what we got. Okay. Huh? If you need them, uh, we'll, we'll get them for you. Okay? Yeah. Okay, I think we're done.